Welcome to the show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing today? I have to tell everybody that uh, I am miserable. (laughs) And the reason I'm miserable is the weather here in New York. I saw Tulsi Gabbard tweet the other day that, uh, you know, she's, I guess she's in Iowa or New Hampshire and it was snowing and she basically is like, Excited about it because she said, you know, an island girl, whenever an island girl sees snow, it's special. Um, But if you live in a place where it snows almost every year, which of course it does in New York, uh, you do not like the snow. (laughs) If you live in a place where it snows every year and your hobby is golf, you really, really, really don't like the snow. So, yes, I will now uh, be stuck inside from now until, uh, if I'm lucky, late March. If I'm not lucky, April or May. Um, And it is miserable. (laughs) I wanted to start today off on a high note. I wanted everybody to to feel all joyous and happy at my expense. But just know that if you're listening to this show from California... I mean, apparently Southern California had a little bit of a rainstorm or a snowstorm, though, recently. I was seeing that all over the news, and that's super rare that Southern California has that. So, I don't know, scratch that. If you're listening to this in Phoenix, if you're listening to this in Las Vegas, if you're listening to this anywhere in Florida, just know that I am insanely jealous of you. And I wish that that's where I was. I will now let my... Seasonal depression kick my ass for the next couple months. 
Um, just taking a chug of Big Seltzer real quick. Uh, so, today's show is jam-packed. I don't know why I'm already wasting time, because there's no way I'm going to finish all these stories. Um, we're, we're, we're probably going to set a record today in terms of stories covered. I'm all over the place. I got Mayor Pete going after Bernie and free college. I got Barack Obama. I got Michael Bloomberg. Um, I got Joe Biden's ramblings. I'm, uh, I'm going to be here for at least the next two and a half hours, probably longer today. So anyway, without further ado, let's get started on a disgusting, cold, wet, snowy, rainy, freezing rain, sleety day. Here we go. Mayor Pete released an ad going after the idea of free college. And so by extension, he's going after Bernie here. This is, um, this is special. He's really doing what I call the full cloud boot, cloud boot jar or the full Delaney here, which is running a campaign and never talking about what you're for, only talking about what you're against. Or actually, scratch that. I should, I should rephrase that. Only talking about or, or primarily and predominantly talking about the things that you're against and not what you're for. So without further ado, take a look. I believe we should move to make college affordable for everybody. There are some voices saying, well, that doesn't count unless you go even further, unless it's free even for, for the kids and millionaires. But the only one to make promises that we can keep. Look, what I'm proposing is, is plenty bold. I mean, these are big ideas. We can gather the, the majority to drive those big ideas through without turning off half the country before we even get into office. And that, I think, is the best governing strategy, as well as what it's going to take in order to win. The Lord knows we got to win. I'm Pete Buttigieg, and I approve this message. Hmm, I wonder why it is that Mayor Pete was the number one recipient of billionaire money so far. And actually, that fact may have just changed recently, but according to an article from about three months ago, he was leading the pack in terms of how many billionaire contributors he had. Hmm, I can't figure it out. Because they actually think he's somewhat viable, unlike Delaney, unlike Cloud Bujar, and... They're trying to help him out as much as possible because he makes arguments like this. So let's run through um, the many reasons why this is a really, really terrible stance he's taking. First of all, the children of rich people are much more likely to go to private universities than public universities. So that's an important point. Whenever he makes the argument that he just made, there's, uh, you know, the sense people get from it, you could say rightly or wrongly, it doesn't really matter, but the sense people get from it is, oh, if we have free college, we're helping out millionaires and billionaires and their families and their kids, and I don't want to do that because they could take care of themselves. So it's a very misleading point just solely based on that fact, solely based on the fact that the kids of wealthy families are more likely to go to private universities than public universities. The next point is, he's not even correct. Like, let's say for a second, it was the case that the kids of wealthy families would go to the free public universities. 
their taxes would go up to pay for this proposal anyway. So even if they go to these free public universities, they'd still be net payers into the system because the, the tax rate that they would pay would mean they're paying in more than they're receiving from it. So again, just that's on that point, he's just flat wrong. Not even like, oh, maybe if he twists it, he has an argument. No, he's just wrong on that front. Um, and then the point that I can't get out of my mind, the first thing that came to my mind when I heard Mayor Pete and others go after the idea of free college is, okay, well, why don't you just be consistent in your argument and say, why doesn't this same argument apply from K to 12? Why aren't you out there arguing against free K to 12? And I'm sure the answer is because we already have it. Like, that's, I'm sure, what they would say. But if, if you actually believed in the point you're making, then be objective and apply it across the board and say, yeah, we, should, we shouldn't have free K-12. to It shouldn't be like that because I'm, you know, you're taking away choice and you're helping the, the um, kids of wealthy families. Be consistent. Take that position. See, it's, it's this faux progressivism. There was an article that was written, I think it was in the Washington Post, but I could be wrong about that, where they tried to argue that Mayor Pete's means-tested um, approach on college is actually more progressive than Bernie Sanders' position. Utterly absurd. Utterly absurd. And also, when you get into the details, apparently he said, or somebody in his staff said, oh, you know, if you make $100,000 or more, you wouldn't get free college in, in his ideal scenario. To which uh, AOC pointed out correctly, well, hold on now, $100,000, so you can have a, a working mom and dad each making fifty grand. they are not wealthy. It's certainly, it's, especially depending on what district they live in, they're not wealthy, and they're not going to qualify for free college. And even if it's you have a, you know, a single breadwinner in the family and they make $100,000, in some districts, even though that's a, that's a good amount of money, in some districts, it's not as much as people might think. So to include them in the same category as like Jeff Bezos and as, you know, billionaires and multimillionaires, that's ridiculous. But this is what his plan does. It's a terrible, terrible plan. Um, and then his other point is, well, listen, you're more likely to get my idea through. Based on what? Citation needed, bro. That's actually not true at all. You're not more likely to get a means-tested, um, you know, plan through. In fact, Republican lawmakers are going to oppose anything that the left tries to do or that Democrats try to do. Um, and actually, when you talk about free college, that polls, depending on what poll you look at, it polls at around 60% favorability. So your terrible means-tested approach polls lower and the Republicans in the Senate and, and in Congress are going to block it anyway. Our idea, sure, the Republicans in the Senate and the Republicans in Congress are going to want to block free college, no doubt about that. But at least we have massive public support, which means actually if we harness the will of the people and we're really aggressive and we do a, a full court press and, and a strong campaign in favor of free college, they'll feel a lot more political pressure in that scenario 
Why? Because we're trying to drive home a policy proposal that has about a 60% approval rating where you're trying to drive something home that's probably underwater, under 50%. So I think it's the exact opposite. I think you're much more likely to get through the more bold proposal just because of the public support for the bold proposal, which is uh, free college. And then the final point is, and many people have pointed this out in regards to um, these kinds of programs, guys, universal programs are more likely to be politically durable. And there's a very simple reason for that. So let's assume for a second you get this plan in place. It's going to be politically durable because it is decidedly not welfare. It's something that everybody experiences the benefits of. So it's much less likely to ever get put on the chopping block and be cut. That's why, to this day, Republicans have a hard time cutting um, Medicare and Social Security. So they have a hard time doing it because they're more broad programs. Whereas if you have something like welfare, for example, that was the first thing on the chopping block. They did welfare reform. It was a Democratic president in the 1990s that did welfare reform because it's easy to demonize those programs when it's only a smaller segment of the population that's benefiting from them. And, and universal programs poll higher, have more support, and then when they're in place, it's much harder to cut them. Look at the NHS in the UK. Conservatives are much less likely to go after it. And when they do go after it, they have to be weaselly about it and, and do it in underhanded, sly ways. Because they know it's basically political suicide if they're honest and upfront about what they want to do with the NHS. Because even conservative voters in the UK generally like the NHS. So these programs are overwhelmingly popular and therefore harder to cut once they're in place. Whereas a means-tested approach could be dismissed as welfare and they're easier to cut because they're not as popular. So, I mean, there's the plethora of reasons why Mayor Pete's approach to this is dead wrong. But I do think it's quite telling that he's gone full cloud boot jar, full Delaney. I mean, guys, you have to remember, Mayor Pete at the beginning of this race, he tried to pretend like he was more in the Bernie Sanders lane. I remember him arguing for Medicare for All on MSNBC and saying, hey, we need to shift the conversation. We need to change the Overton window. The real left-wing position is an NHS-style proposal, so the compromise would be like a French-style system, which is still, uh, you know, public funding. The public is the single insurer. So that used to be his position. He used to talk favorably about a lot of left-wing ideas, and then as soon as he realized, okay, that lane is closed because Bernie's dominating there, seamlessly shifted to the right. He used to have Twitter arguments with people where he said, no, I am in favor of Medicare for all. Then flipped as soon as he thought, oh, that's not the political lane where I can win. So Mayor Pete is such a fraud. Guys, he doesn't, and this is the main point, he doesn't really believe in anything. He'll just, he'll change his mind to say the thing that he thinks he should say in order to raise more big donor money and get elected. Like, what philosophy are you repping? What philosophy are you repping? I could tell you the philosophy of various Democrats running, the ones who actually believe in something. I could tell you the main reason why Andrew Yang is running universal basic income. I could tell you the main reason why Tulsi is running and regime change wars. I could tell you the main reason why Bernie Sanders is running Medicare for all and the corruption. 
I mean, it's obvious why the candidates who are actually half decent are running. Why are you running, Mayor Pete? Why are you running, Mayor Pete? Here's the answer. Mayor Pete, narcissism, self-aggrandizement. This policy uh, proposal is horrendous, and I have zero interest in any Democrats who are running for office and they spend equal time or more time telling you what they're against instead of what they're for. Okay, next. It's going to be a good show, y'all. It's going to be a good show, y'all. It's going to be a good show, y'all. So let's keep it going, bitch. It was revealed last week that Barack Obama would speak out against Bernie if it looked like Bernie was going to run away with it and get the nomination. This was a big story about a week or so ago. Um, Now, this story proves two things. Number one, Obama actually self-identifies as a, a centrist status quo manager, that he understands that that's his role. So all the progressive talk on the campaign trail where he was acting like he was further left than he is, he knows that was just a charade. He knows that was just an act. He knows that was just what he does on the campaign trail to then get in office and then get serious about the job of being president. That's the first thing. The second thing is, now everybody's talking about the first thing and everybody understands that. The second point, which I haven't heard many people talk about, which I also think is indisputably correct, is that he's terrified that In a situation where Bernie wins, Bernie's legacy would dwarf his and put his in historical perspective. And then history wouldn't look so kindly on his legacy. And he's terrified of that. So the takeaway there is, in my estimation, I think that Barack Obama cares way more about his legacy and the respect he wants on his name than he cares about actually fixing our terrible, disgusting, broken system. Remember, guys, it was just a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, where we covered a story where apparently Obama's team, and they were saying this out loud as if, like, you know, like, oh, I don't get it. Why, why is this the case? They were saying, I don't understand why health care is, like, one of the top things that all these candidates are running on. I don't understand why so many candidates are seemingly pushing for Medicare for all. Now, at this point, it's, you know, pretty much only Bernie, who's really never wavered even a little bit on that. But they're amazed that healthcare is center stage. Why? Because in their mind, they go, we wasted a lot of political capital and we got Obamacare through. And so like that check next moving on. And isn't that so indicative of one of the many problems with Obama? and his administration, and his team, is that they think like, well, that, that's enough. We did as good as we possibly could on that front. Same I, uh, idea with Dodd-Frank. Dodd-Frank comes along, and it is a watered-down half measure, which doesn't address the core problem, which led to the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. It doesn't even bring back Glass-Steagall, which is absolutely necessary if you want to avert the next crash. 
And now they're looking around like, I don't understand. Why is, why is Wall Street reform still a topic and regulation still a topic that people are talking about? We already did Dodd-Frank. But you're only doing the reform in name. You're doing these terrible half measures, which are completely ineffectual and don't get to the root problem. And then you're surprised when we have to go back and address it again. In the case of, of health care, yes, he gets partial credit because uh, Obamacare, even though it wasn't the best kind of reform, in fact, it was one of the worst kinds of reforms, at least it covered millions more people. Congratulations. It covered, uh, you know, did protections for pre-existing conditions. That's a good thing. Congratulations. Let kids stay on their parents' rolls until they're 26 years old. Congratulations. That's all wonderful stuff. But we still have 500,000 bankruptcies for medical bills. We still have tens of millions who are uninsured. Um, we still have deaths from people not being able to get basic health care, 30 to 45,000 a year. So, and on top of that, Obamacare perpetually polled around 50%, sometimes less, sometimes just over. And when you have a, a reform that's consistently on wobbly baby deer legs, it's easy for the opposition to come in and gut it. And that's exactly what happened. And that's exactly what Trump did. And so in uh, Trump's first term, at least 7 million people have now lost their health insurance. Now, some might argue, well, listen, no matter what reform you do, they would stab it in the back. History tells us it's a lot harder to stab in the back a strong universal proposal because a strong universal proposal has a much higher favorability rating. And then they know it's political suicide to directly go at a strong universal program. So it would definitely weather the test of time and the right-wing onslaught much better. Listen, this is the truth about Obama. You have to be honest. Are there good things he did? Absolutely. The Iran deal was wonderful. You know, unfortunately, that was also stabbed in the back by Trump and the Republicans. Um, freeing the nonviolent drug offenders, which he did, many of them, in his second term in office. That was wonderful. There are a bunch of things I could point to where I say, good job, way better than your standard Republican, no doubt. But Obama himself has described his own ideology as that of a moderate Republican, that of an old school moderate Republican. And now you see that when you're presented with an actual lefty like Bernie Sanders, who's calling to do basic lefty things, FDR style New Deal liberalism. And he's like, what, what, why would you do such things? I would have to speak out against him if it looks like he's going to win. The first time Obama was in the news after his presidency, what was it? Do you guys remember? Going jet skiing with billionaire Richard Branson. And then the next time was giving Wall Street speeches for about $500,000 a pop. It turns out that when the guy bailed out Wall Street to the tune of $14 trillion, they look at him kind of favorably when he doesn't prosecute bankers who need to be prosecuted, they're like, oh, that's our boy. We may have had hard feelings when we were in there, but ultimately he looked out for us. That's our boy. So he self-identifies as a moderate Republican. His policies act like that of a moderate Republican. And now some people are surprised that, oh, my God, he's against Bernie? What? Yes, he is. Now, I don't know how direct he would be in denouncing Bernie. Is it possible what he would do is not mention Bernie at all, but 
throw an endorsement behind one of the corporate Democrats, whoever it might be, Mayor Pete, Deval Patrick, Michael Bloomberg, Amy Klobuchar. Is it possible he would do something like that? Joe Biden, he hasn't endorsed him. It looks like he won't endorse him. Um, it's possible he would do something like that. Or it's possible he's more direct. But my, my guess is, in a typical Obama fashion, he would play hide the ball a little bit, and he wouldn't be totally upfront. And so he wouldn't just flat out say, like, I'm against Bernie becoming the nominee. Because he wants to leave himself wiggle room so that if his attempt to stop Bernie doesn't work, he could turn around and say, I wasn't even trying to stop Bernie. I don't know what you guys were talking about. I was just saying that my favorite candidate was one of the centrists. That's all I was saying. So I don't know how direct he would have been, but I'm not surprised that this is the way he feels. Guys, in 2016, there were many clips of him basically arguing against Bernie without flat out saying it. The clips, it was, he was asked, hey, you know, would you like Hillary or Bernie more? And he basically said, like, in an ideal world, sure, we'd start from scratch and we'd do a top-down do-over of the system, but we don't live in an ideal world and you can't start from scratch. So, you know, you got to deal with the cards you've been dealt. You got to work with the cards you've been dealt. So what do you want me to say? It is what it is. You need somebody who's masterful at working from within the system. And that's the hint of, like, it's Hillary over Bernie he supports. The fact that this guy, in his heart of hearts, wanted Hillary over Bernie, doesn't that say a lot? He wanted Hillary to continue his legacy. It shows that, at his heart, he's a neoliberal, corporatist, centrist, Clintonite. That's what he is. That's what his ideology is, with minor tweaks. If Bernie Sanders were to get elected, and if Bernie were to only get done 10% of the stuff that he's pushing for, that alone would make Obama's presidency look like an abysmal failure. On some level, I think he's aware of that. And on some level, he just flat out disagrees with Bernie. Does he disagree because it's just ideological, or does he disagree also because he's corrupted from the massive amount of Wall Street money he's taken? I'll leave that up to you to determine, but bottom line is, in this split in the party between Obama and Bernie, I know what side I'm on. All right, Michael Bloomberg time. Let's make fun of this guy. Here I have a video of Michael Bloomberg at some conference for rich pricks. And this just went viral on Twitter. You're about to see why that is. In this clip, he's arguing basically that it's virtuous to tax the poor. Say, well, taxes are regressive, but in this case, Yes, they are. That's the good thing about them, because the problem is in people that don't have a lot of money. And so higher taxes should have a bigger impact on their behavior and how they deal with themselves. So I listen to people saying, oh, we don't want to tax the poor. Well, we want the poor to live longer so that they can get an education and enjoy life. And that's what, why you do want to do exactly what a lot of people say you don't want to do. The question is, 
do you want to pander to those people or do you want to get them to live longer? And there's just no question, if you raise taxes on full sugary drinks, for example, they will drink less. And there's just no question that full sugar drinks are one of the major contributors to obesity, and obesity is one of the major contributors to heart disease and cancer and a variety of other things. Mm. So it's like saying I don't want to stop using coal because coal miners will go out of work, well, will lose their jobs. We have a lot of soldiers in the United States and the U.S. Army, but we don't want to go start a war just to give them something to do. And that's exactly what you're saying when you say, well, let's keep coal killing people because we don't want coal miners to lose their jobs. The truth of the matter is there aren't very many coal miners left anyways, and we can find other things for them to do. But the comparison is a life or a job or taxes or life. Which do you want to do? Take your poison. This guy is the living caricature parody, stereotype of the elitist, out-of-touch, nanny state Democrat who wants to get in your life, have big government get in your life in every which way that big government shouldn't be involved in your life. Now, I'm not one of those people who says, you know, small government's always a good thing. No, it depends what the issue is. Sometimes you do need big government. But what I don't want big government for is to get in your life when it comes to personal decisions and make those decisions for you and take away your basic social freedoms. That's where I don't want big government. Michael Bloomberg does want big government in all those areas, and then when it comes to areas where we should have big government, he doesn't want it. So notice, how telling is this, guys? He's like, oh, all the health problems associated with sugary drinks, bro, such a bad problem. Good point. So everybody should have health care as a right and not a privilege to deal with that, right? Oh. No, I didn't, I didn't say that. I'd rather just force you to stop drinking them by using the law against you. Hey, Mike, let me ask you a question, man. What are your vices? You know he has them. Everybody has vices. Everybody has vices. What are your vices? What are they? I'm curious. Do you have a sweet tooth? Do you like drinking alcohol? What is it? What's your vice? Everybody has a vice. What's your vice? How would Michael Bloomberg like it if somebody in the government just decided to ban it one day nonchalantly because that person that person decided they know what's best for you i don't like that thing that you do and that you have and that you enjoy i'm going to take that away i don't like it it's not good it has bad societal consequences i'm going to ban it this is what he did with the large drinks i don't like that it's i don't like it i'm going to ban it it's not good i don't like i don't care if you don't like it or not who are you who are you are you kidding me what a ridiculous thing, man. They want to take away your social freedoms. That's exactly what he wants to do, and he's admitting it. Guys, he said taxes are regressive on the poor, and that's good. He's in favor of taxing the poor more so they don't get into bad habits. Oh, my God, he's thinking about this in the exact wrong way. Maybe a lot of the, the social problems are caused by the poverty and if we get people out of poverty, then maybe the social ills will start going down. That's what I think will happen. That's what I think will happen. Now, will that solve every problem? No, if you get people out of poverty. But getting people out of poverty in and of itself is a goal that is positive. 
I don't need to measure the rest of the stuff around it to determine whether or not getting people out of poverty is a good thing. Getting people out of poverty is inherently a good thing. It's a tautology. But that's not the way he thinks about it. He thinks like, oh, people in poverty oftentimes make bad decisions. Let's ban those bad decisions. But those people are still in poverty. Those people are still in poverty. Are you okay with that? His answer is yes, because he doesn't want to do anything to stop that, which is why uh, Michael Bloomberg blocked a minimum wage increase when he was mayor of New York City. He's not in favor of a minimum wage increase. And now this guy is running to be the Democratic nominee. How embarrassing are you, man? Honestly, this guy's embarrassing. So he's, he's the perfect example of a totally out-of-touch, tone-deaf billionaire. Listen, if you're poor, you're like first on the list that I want to allow you to have that blow-off steam valve to let you in, indulge in your vice because it's a miserable state of affairs being poor. And sometimes you need a beer. Sometimes you need a giant soda. Sometimes you need a cigarette. Sometimes, I don't know, you need fill in the blank with whatever, whatever vice. But this isn't how he thinks about it. He wants to social engineer. That's what he wants to do. I'm, I'm what I would call a libertarian leftist. Libertarian on social issues, leftist on economic issues. He is basically an authoritarian centrist. Authoritarian corporatist. Authoritarian in the sense that he wants to control your life on, when it comes to social issues. And centrist corporatist in the sense that he wants to basically defend the status quo when it comes to the economic issues. Hence, you know, him being against the minimum wage increase, him being against Medicare for all. I mean, how telling is it that he looks at like a, a, an obesity crisis and his solution is not, you know, part of his solution is not maybe we should do preventative care and maybe we should have Medicare for all so that everybody has the health care that they need and they deserve. You save lives that way. 30 to 45,000 people die because they don't have access to basic health care. That's not how he thinks about it. He looks at it and he goes, well, if I just take more money from poor people, what are poor people lacking? Money. If I just take more money from them, well, then I'm taking away their ability to indulge in their bad habits, and I'm effectively forcing their hand to be more healthy. That's just evil. <laughs> That's just evil, man. That's evil. It's this guy. He's a child. He's a child who never grew up. And he just wants to social engineer everything around him. And since he has the billions of dollars, he's put himself in a position where he can try to scratch that itch. I mean, he's bought legitimacy already in this race. $37 million ad buy. And then now, as a result of that, his ads are running all over the place. I see him all the time here in New York. His ads are running all over the place. The media is talking about him like he's a serious candidate now. And it's only it's because he's a billionaire. Is he, is he able to get into this position solely based off the power of his ideas and his philosophy and his popularity? No. Only 19% of the Democrats even want him to run. Never mind support him because 19% don't support him. Only 19% even say he should run, and he's doing it. This is some oligarch stuff, man. And when you hear him talk, you... That is traditional oligarch stuff. Regressive taxes on the poor are good because the poor have bad habits. 
So take away more of their money and they can't indulge in their bad habits. Yeah, run on that. Let me know how that goes in 2020. All right, next. Chris Hayes of MSNBC, concern trolled about Medicare for All. He's speaking to Walid Shahid of Justice Democrats here. And Shahid does a good job uh, jousting with him. Take a look. It's also the war over public opinion in America and how American democracy works, where there is a multi-million dollar propaganda campaign against Medicare for All that has certain politicians like Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden aligned with it. They spend, Politico just did a story on this, they spend millions of dollars running Facebook ads, TV ads, sending out talking points, briefings, pitching stories to the media, and that that is the war that we're in on Medicare for All. It's not just that public opinion is static, it's that public opinion is being organized, and for the past four months, there's been a major effort by healthcare corporations, not corporations, to scare and put fear in the hearts of Democrats around, I totally, around this issue. I totally agree with that. But for a very long time, Medicare for All, say four or five months ago, Medicare for All proponents would say, look, it's polling so well, it's popular. American people like it. And it's true. Its popularity when it was not under attack was higher. And I always say to them, well, that's true, but it's not in the crucible of a fight over it being implemented. Once it's in the crucible, believe me, that polling will go down. Like, the problem Medicare for All is facing when you talk about that onslaught is literally the same problem that we'll have to face down and defeat were it ever to become a law, right? I think that's a very good point, but it's precisely the point why progressives should continue to fight for Medicare for All and fight more aggressively than they have before. Obamacare was pulling less, uh, 50% of people opposed Obamacare the day it was passed. It had approval ratings around 40, 39, 40%. Yes, it, the was, day it, was it was It was unpopular, and my, the argument for Medicare for All from pragmatic political perspective is that what happens in Washington is often you end up legislating in a way that compromises and gives concessions to these health insurance corporations or corporate interests in America in general. So why would you start already compromising on what you think is the best policy that delivers the best solutions for Americans who are currently facing a GoFundMe for All healthcare system? I think progressives need to do a much better job explaining what Medicare for All is. Often the polling ends with a question around eliminating private insurance, and then that's the last question that a voter is asked about the issue, rather than any of the other benefits of Medicare for All. let's go through this. First of all, yes, there's a multi-million dollar propaganda campaign that's going on against Medicare for All now. Why? Because for the first time, maybe in U.S. history, but certain, certainly in modern U.S. history, the corporations know, oh, this can really happen. There's wind in the sails of Medicare for All. So the reason why there's this multi-million dollar propaganda campaign against Medicare for All is precisely because it's a threat and we could actually get it. 
we could actually win, and they know that. So they're fighting back now. For the longest time, it was the opposite strategy. What was the strategy? Indifference. Oh, act like there's not, it's not a thing. Like, no, nobody's actually in favor of that. It's not going to go anywhere. Oh, shoot. Now, a lot of polls come out where people are definitely in favor of it. And so now the full-court press comes, and they're trying to beat back the popularity. However, their attempts are so clunky. They're so bad. I mean, I've seen it. When you go to these polling questions, um, the one that's often cited is people are asked about Medicare for All. Then they're asked, how would you feel about it if I told you it takes away your private insurance? And, wow, would you look at that? Support plummets to below 50% when you ask that. Now, what do people not tell you? They don't tell you the next question, which was, okay, what would I tell you? What would you tell me if it took away your private insurance, but you still had the freedom to pick your doctor? All of a sudden, it goes back up way above 50%, close to 60%. So it's all in how you frame it, guys. There, you could frame a question on Medicare for All. Ready? It goes like this. Would you support a policy that forces you into a socialized medicine system? What are people going to say to that? That's going to be way under 50%, way under 50%. But you'll have dishonest people taking that and going around going, see, see, we told you it's not popular. It only polled at 40%. See, told you. But again, it's always all in the frame. You can get whatever answer you want based on the framing. When you're honest about the benefits of Medicare for all, when you're honest about the shortcomings of our current system, then every time it pulls over 60% favorability, sometimes as high as 70%, sometimes you even get over 50% of Republicans when it's framed in either a neutral way or a way that accurately describes the state of affairs in the real world, where you explain what a Medicare for All system is and why our current system is so terrible because it's objectively terrible according to every metric. So... There's a multi-million dollar campaign against Medicare for All now, but they're so clunky and they're so bad. Now, let's get to the Democrats. Actually, one more point for Chris Hayes, because he goes, but this is the problem, is that there's going to be a fight against Medicare for All, and what do you do in that situation? To which I respond to Chris Hayes, it's your job to correct them, man. Here he is, like, concern trolling. What's going to happen with Medicare for All in this fight? Because it's going to be a fire. What are we going to do? You're the media. Your job is to correct them. Your job is to say, whoa, 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 here's why all the propaganda against Medicare for All is indeed propaganda, and let me break it down for you in no uncertain terms so you have no questions left about this and you understand what's going on, and it's a very well-financed propaganda campaign against the popular policy position because they want to protect their profits. The, The health insurance companies want to protect their profits. The pharma industry wants to protect their profits. You should point that out. That's your job. Your job is to point that out. But no, he's concerned trolling. Oh, but this is going to happen. So what are you going to do when they fight? But now the final point is directed at the Democrats. And this is where everybody should be terrified. And there's an extra reason to be terrified, too, because the problem is not just the, the corporate Democrats who are flat out enemies of Medicare for all. The problem is also the Democrats who nominally say they agree with you but they don't really agree with you, and so they don't know how to fight for that position because they don't deeply believe it. And when I say that, yes, I'm looking at people like Andrew Yang, who I generally like. I'm looking at people like, although he's obviously not in Congress, not in the Senate. I'm looking at people like Tulsi, who's in, the con- who's in Congress. I've unfortunately seen 
them argue for this position, but they don't do a good job of defending it because they're not actually fully on board with it. The only person who really goes to the mat hardcore for Medicare for All is Bernie Sanders. Elizabeth Warren put under enough political pressure, she backs off. Tulsi Gabbard put under enough political pressure, she backs off and starts talking about single-payer plus and how much she loves choice. And, oh, you can keep your, you know, your employee, uh, employer plan if you want to keep your employer plan. So the real problem that we're going to face is not even the propaganda campaign from the media and, and the health insurance company-backed propaganda campaign. That's not even the big problem because their arguments are terrible and it's easy to override them. The problem is the media not doing its job and calling it what it is, as Chris Hayes demonstrates here, and Democrats who are even nominally our allies who don't know how to fight back against the propaganda. Because oftentimes what happens is if you don't really believe in Medicare for All and you haven't studied the issue, you're going to always take the path of least resistance. And so you'll take these, these health insurance company corporate funded talking points as legitimate arguments and respond genuinely to them, as opposed to saying, you're doing corporate propaganda, and what you're trying to defend is a mafia that's ripping off Americans every single day and denying people care. And this is why, this is why all the time on this show we talk about how necessary it is to be aggressive and to, and to fight the debate, have the debate on your terms, and to reframe it and to explain to everybody the, the reality of the situation. Because the only way you're going to win this fight is with raw, clear, aggressive, to-the-point arguments that bust up the other side. That's the only way that you can maintain that high approval rating when you have the corporate-funded propaganda against it, the media not saying anything, the entire Republican Party viciously and directly going after Medicare for All, and the corporate Democrats agreeing with them going after Medicare for All. You need to have a strong, united front where everybody who's in favor of Medicare for All is on the same page and making the same arguments and not, not missing a word, not skipping a beat, and destroying the other side. And the way you do that is to do what I've been trying to do on this show for years now, which is you get right to the point and say, listen, these are corporate talking points. This is health insurance industry nonsense. They're protecting their profits, and Americans are dying in the meantime. 30 to 45,000 Americans die every year because they don't get basic health care. The health insurance company are a, a, a middleman, unnecessary, rapacious, for-profit mafia. That's what they are. They're a criminal enterprise stealing your money and getting in between you and your doctor. I want to get rid of that middleman. I want you to be able to go right to your doctor and save money. That's what I want. You have to fight back as strongly as possible. And that's what I'm afraid of, is that you only got one dude who's doing that, Bernie. And everybody else, when they're under, when they're under the pressure, they start making concessions. They start concessions. Oh, okay, I give in on this point. I give in on this point. Yeah, choice. Absolutely. Oh, choice. We need to preserve choice. Like, they don't really grasp what we're actually up against here. We're up against an entire broken, corrupt system. And you don't beat that broken and corrupt system by half agreeing with it. You beat that system by beating that system. Take out your verbal stick and go after it. So that's what I'm afraid of. I have no hope that the 
Republican lawmakers will come to our side. I have no hope that the media will come to our side and do their job and call balls and strikes. I have no hope that the corporate Democrats will come to our side. But what we have to do if we ever want to get this passed is get our nominal allies to get on our side and to be serious about taking on this scourge. Because right now, I don't think they're up to it. And Walid is 100% correct when he says, this is all the more reason to fight even stronger. Like, Chris's implication is, oh, that's why you're going to have to back off after a certain point, right? Because there's going to be all this giant fight against it, and what are you going to do? What are you going to do? There's going to be a giant fight against Medicare for all, and you're going to have to win that fight somehow. And Walid is like, well, no, that's why we should fight even more aggressively for it now, because it really is true. I think Bill Mars made this point years ago that Republicans change poll numbers. Democrats run from poll numbers. So, in other words, the Republicans will see that Medicare for All is, not poll- is polling really well, and they'll go, oh, let's change that by just relentlessly attacking it and smearing it. Democrats will see, oh, Medicare for All is at like 58%. It's not like 80%, so I don't know if I could fight for it. <laughs> and then even if it gets to 80%, they're still like, I don't know, it's not 95 And if it gets to 95 they're like, I don't know if we can win this because the Republicans said they're not going to budge an inch. This is what happened with universal background checks, for example. Even with over 90% approval uh, support for the Democratic position, they backed off of the fight with Mitch McConnell. If we don't get Medicare for all, it will be because of Democratic weakness. The Democrats who nominally agree with us, their weakness. It won't be because of the corporate Democrats. It won't be because of the Republicans. We know they're against it. We know they're not budging. So that means it's on us to be smart enough, strong enough, and savvy enough to know how to navigate this minefield. And the way you do that is with raw, clear aggression driving those poll numbers even further up than they are, even in the midst of the onslaught of propaganda, and forcing those in your caucus to do the right thing through a variety of methods. we got to be ready for this fight, man. we got to be prepared. Unfortunately, too many of us are not at this point. A video of Joe Biden's creepy ramblings went viral the other day. Now, what's interesting about this is it was actually from the corn pop speech that he gave during the summer. You guys remember that? Where he spoke about, you know, corn pop and the fight he got in with corn pop and everything. And it kind of went viral then because it's like, what are you rambling a story about a dude named corn pop? This is ridiculous. Well, I don't know. I guess the rest of the speech didn't leak yet or something, or it it resurfaced or whatever, but the corn pop part of the speech wasn't even the weirdest part of the speech. The part that you're about to see is, this is what blew up on social media. Probably for your dad. 
first African American state senator in the state of in the state of Delaware. Everything about. And by the way, you know I sit on the stand, and it get hot. I got a lot of I got hairy legs that turn that 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 that, that turn uh, um, blonde in the sun. And the kids used to come up and reach in the pool and rub my leg down so it was straight and then watch the hair come back up again. They look at it. So I learned about roaches. I learned about kids jumping on my lap. And I've loved kids jumping on my lap. And I tell you what, the men are now all men, the guys I work with down here, and they're all guys at the time. They're all good men. Most of them made a lot of themselves. And Earl Larkin had a rough time. And some of you knew Earl. I, just, I came back as a public defender. I don't even know what to say, man. I'm very rarely ever speechless on this show. I am speechless. <laughs> I can't imagine that that part of the speech had leaked previously. I guess it leaked recently. Or nobody, you know, put a spotlight on it, but whoa. Somehow, in the corn pop speech, the corn pop part seriously wasn't the weirdest part. Um, Also this week, Biden went viral for sucking his wife's finger while she was giving a speech. Now, when you see the actual video of it, it's relatively quick. So it's not as weird, maybe, as the picture makes it look, but... I think it's pretty weird either way. Uh, And then also he was, you know, put through the ringer on social media for his uh, goofy no malarkey bus. He's on the no malarkey bus tour. (laughs) That's going to be his new slogan is no malarkey. Man, he's just like he is over and over. He's feeding into this narrative of him being too out of touch. You know, not all there anymore. No malarkey. What was, it's the bee's knees taken. And he, I mean, I did it, I tweeted the other day, like a list of <laughs> other like old schooly type things, like, like, um, real hip daddy-o, <laughs> if that was on the bus, or ballyhoo, or just all these Old school, like, 1920s-like talking points. Like, what are you doing, man? Jesus. Um, so Biden's not having a, a great time at the moment. Somehow he's still hanging on to a lead in some polls. His, his trend has definitely been downward, but he's still leading in some polls. It is what it is. You have to understand that there is a possibility that he somehow hangs on for dear life and takes this thing. It seems nearly inconceivable, but to this point, he's still leading in the average. I know, I know, it, but it's true, <laughs> but it's true. So I don't know what my favorite part of that was. There was so much there. He's just rambling. My leg, my leg hair is blonde, turns blonde in the sun, and then the hair, the hair stands up when they rub their, their hands on, down my leg. Bro, what? So, no, no, you have the you have the reputation of being too handsy. That's why I call you handsy Uncle Joseph. There's like endless compilations out there of you getting too touchy-feely with kids who don't want you to touch and feel them. And you're going to tell a story where you're like, I love it when kids run their hands down my leg. 
and then my hair stands up. And then he throws out something about roaches. I learned a lot about roaches. Roaches? What? Are, what? <laughs> Where is this coming from? And then the kids, they bounce on my lap. I love it when the kids bounce on my lap. Oh, no, don't, don't say that, man. <laughs> don't say that, man. Reel it in. Reel it in a little bit, fam. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what you're doing. And then he goes to, um, and then a lot of the guys that I saw back then, and they were guys at the time. What, was there like, was there like a, a, you know, a whole group of people in Delaware went trans? They're all trans now? <laughs> a lot of the guys, and they were guys at the time. Was there a mass movement towards being transgender from Delaware at the time that you were there? I, I don't know what he's saying, man. Nobody knows what he's saying. The funniest thing about Joe Biden's campaign is that apparently everybody around him when he's giving these speeches, they're all just listening like, yep, mm-hmm. That's a good point. Did you hear that? was a good point. Mm. Randomly bringing up roaches and kids rubbing your legs. Right, right. <laughs> do, you not all, do you all not understand how weird this is? And again, I feel bad because uh, it's not... He's not all there anymore, man. Be honest. Even with Trump's mental deterioration, and I do think Trump is having it, Trump's isn't as bad as Biden's. Biden's is way worse. I mean, Bernie is older than Biden, and Bernie is sharp as a tack. So it's not necessarily an age thing. It's just a Biden thing at this point in time. And, oh, God. Please, Joe, just step aside. Just step aside. And you know what's... What's really interesting is if Biden were to step aside, a lot of the polls show that the people who are supporting him, their second choice is Bernie. What? See, uh, unfortunately, in many ways, there's, a, there's really not a correlation between ideology and first choice, second choice, third choice, so on and so forth. There was an article that just came out the other day. Somebody said, oh, I was a Bernie bro in uh, 2016, and now I'm voting for Mayor Pete. What? (laughs) That makes no sense. They're totally ideologically, diametrically opposed. But unfortunately, when you look at those polls, and you could say, oh, I don't believe them, or I only believe them to a certain extent, that's fine. But the numbers do show that it's not like Biden supporters' second choice is Bernie. So if he were to drop out, woo, doggy. Then you get a big Bernie lead. So, anyway, it's always weird with Biden. It's getting weirder and weirder, and uh, I do, I do, feel bad for him to an extent because this is not good. All right, let me do uh, one more, and then we'll take a break. President Trump is pretending that there's a war on Thanksgiving now. (laughs) It's not just an imaginary war on Christmas. Now it's a war on Thanksgiving. By the way, I love this. (laughs) When he wrote his giant notes. I want nothing. I want nothing. I want no quid pro quo. (laughs) Tell Zelensky, by the way, I think he totally butchered the spelling of Zelensky. Hilarious. Anyway, um, so, yeah, now apparently he thinks there's a war on Thanksgiving. This is a glorious clip. This is classic Trump in many ways. 
the other side of the 2020 ledger, President Trump under fire from the mainstream media, this time for promising to defend Thanksgiving. Yep. They don't want to use the term Thanksgiving. Yep. And that was true also with Christmas, but now everybody's using Christmas again. Remember I said that? But now we're going to have to do a little work on Thanksgiving. People have different ideas why it shouldn't be called Thanksgiving, but everybody in this room I know loves the name Thanksgiving, and we're not changing it. I love that. I just love it. <laughs> he, he, By the way, he says all the time that, like, everybody was saying happy holidays until I became president, and now people are saying, people are saying the right thing. They're saying Merry Christmas. He acts like, me, bro? No big deal, but I put a stop to the happy holidays nonsense, all right? And now we're all about Merry Christmas. Now you're allowed to say Christmas again. You're allowed to say Merry Christmas again. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable, folks. Um, and I love the framing of Fox News. I don't know if you caught it at the beginning there, but he says, they say, Donald Trump is under fire from the media for defending Thanksgiving. No, I believe the reaction from the media is, why is he pretending like anybody's against Thanksgiving? <laughs> They're so dishonest. Like, just, why do you have to set it up in that nonsense way? Like, I get it, you're all about defending Trump all the time. I got it. But, I mean, this is just like you're bending over backwards to be disingenuous. Oh, he's under fire from the media. He's not under fire from the media on this. They're just like, wow, he said that uh, there's a war on Thanksgiving. There's not. <laughs> like, that's the, whole, that's the whole reaction. It's like, what is he talking about? Listen, nobody is more embedded in lefty circles than me. I am as embedded in lefty circles as one can possibly be. And that's no surprise to any of you. Look at what I do. And nobody has ever, ever, in my entire time in left circles, nobody has ever said, you know, we have to change the name of Thanksgiving. And if there is some random weirdo who wrote a blog about it or whatever, that random weirdo represents that random weirdo, not a movement. Not a movement. By the same token, though, I've never, even when it comes to the whole, like, war on Christmas narrative, nobody has ever. I've never gotten a call from, like, David Pakman or Jimmy Dore or Cenk Uger or Anna Kasparian or anybody in lefty circles, and they, you know... We really need to ramp up this war on Christmas thing. What? Did you know 90% of this country celebrates Christmas? It's, it's about, last time I checked the numbers was years ago, but it's like about 75% of the country that's actually Christian, but 90% celebrates Christmas? There are more people celebrating Christmas than people who are part of the religion that is supposed to celebrate Christmas. There's no war on it. It's so, there's so not a war that it is eating other holidays. I start seeing Santa Claus decorations and reindeers and whatnot and mistletoes. Before Thanksgiving, I see that stuff. By the way, that was an old John Stewart joke. He used to say, like, there's so not a war on it, it's eating other holidays. You see it before Thanksgiving. It's insane. But it's true. I do. I do see the stuff before Thanksgiving. There's no war on Thanksgiving. It, actually, you know what? Mind blown. If there is a war on Thanksgiving, the war is being waged by Christmas. Because <laughs> it is. It's eating, it's eating the holiday. So, uh, oh no, Don, are you are you speaking out against Christmas? Because if anybody's waging a war on Thanksgiving, it's it's Christmas. Are you anti-Christmas? Oh God, bro! How could you? 
but see, this is and this is why we're talking about this, guys. Is like they love people on the right love to they love playing the victim. That's one thing. But they also just love being in the culture war. Like they eat this stuff up. They use this culture war nonsense all the time to fire themselves up. But it's like, how silly are you? Who cares? There's not a war on Thanksgiving. There's not a war on Christmas. But if there was a metaphorical culture war on either one, I don't care. I don't care. Not even a little bit. Not even a tiny, tiny, tiny bit. Who gives a shit? There are holidays. Like, whatever. Get over it. You want to celebrate however you want to celebrate? By all means, go right ahead. Nobody's going to stop you. Nobody's going to stop you. But this is what they do. They put this front and center. Why? Why? Because in the case of the, you know, elected Republicans and Donald Trump, look at what else they're doing. Look at the other stuff they're doing. What other news came out this week? Donald Trump is officially declaring drug cartels terrorist organizations so that we can open the door now to doing a literal invasion of Mexico and fight a war in Mexico. As if we haven't been waging a drug war long enough. When you're doing stuff like that, when you're deregulating Wall Street nonstop, when you're cutting taxes for the rich nonstop, you can't talk about those ideas being popular because they're not. So what do you do? Ah, they're coming for your Thanksgiving. They're coming for your Thanksgiving. Turkey is delicious. (laughs) Nobody's coming for Thanksgiving. Nobody's coming for Christmas. Even if they were, I don't care. But this is all you have to talk about because you're not serious. You're not serious. So, I mean, it's just I'm so tired. I'm so tired of this. Like, what a dumb conversation we're having. This is the level we're stuck at in political discourse. No war on Christmas. No war on Thanksgiving. Go pick up another hobby, man. Politics isn't for you. I mean, really, we're going to start having conversations with these people about marginal tax rates and whatnot when they're convinced that there's some sort of, like, secret Marxist plot in this country to, to take down our most cherished holidays. Listen, bottom line is, whatever's an excuse to get people off work, I'm for it. How's that for your war on Thanksgiving? Okay. Let's take a break. I still got a lot of stuff when we come back. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with um, CNN yearning for the days of less democracy. That and much, much more. Stay right there, everybody.
back, bitch. All right. We are just getting started for the show today. Okay, maybe not just getting started, but we're not halfway through yet. Because there's just that much gloriousness. See, when we don't have a show because of a holiday or whatever, I come back just fired up and ready to go, man. I am ready like Freddy because shows just piled up. I mean, stories stories just piled up as I was gone. Um, okay, so next we have Fareed Zakaria. Well, it's actually not him. It's just on his show. It's, uh, it's an interesting one. All right, let me set this up for you. On CNN, they were discussing the Democratic primary, and they decided to yearn for the days of less democracy. Interesting. When you look at the primaries, uh, people say so many people, Bloomberg, I mean, is this more chaotic? Is this, what, what does it look like? I mean, a terrible thing, I'll have to admit, every now and then when I look at the craziness of the primaries, I wish we could go back to the old convention system. I mean, just think about it. We wouldn't start the election until the summer. The conventions would choose somebody. Then in September, a Labor Day, it would begin. It would be over in November. And we'd have lives in between all these elections. Of course, it was Teddy Roosevelt who wanted the primary system in order to be tapped in 1912. And we were talking about this last night. The New York Times printed an editorial because the campaign between Teddy and Taft, the first primary system, was so awful that the New York Times said, if this is the first presidential primary, as an experiment, we hope it's the last. This is embarrassing. Foreigners must be laughing at us. This is not a rational procedure. It's a mob. There is a problem with the way the primary system is set up. Of course, we're not going to go back. It's democratic to have more people vote. But how are we judging the candidates who are in these primaries? How they do in a debate? Who zings who? That's nuts. They're not going to be doing that when they're president. How much have they got a public opinion poll with them? Or how much money have they raised? We should be looking at what kind of leaders they've been in the past. They've all come from somewhere, governors, mayors, senators, congressmen. We don't just need a magazine article. We should be talking constantly. What kind of team do they have around them? Do they share credit? Do they shoulder blame? Um, do they have humility? Do they have empathy? Do they have resilience? Can they, are they accessible? All of these, do they, what's their ambition like? We should know these things. It's what we should be asking them in the debates. You know, have you failed and how have you done that? One question was asked, but I'd love to see those leadership things as an index for judging them. I mean, that's like, put that response in the dictionary under elitist, because that's it right there. Even the criteria that she lays out is obnoxious, because it's a luxury to not have to worry about policy, and she didn't mention anything regarding policy. She didn't say, what's their take on unions? What's their take on Medicare for all and health care? What's their take on a living wage? What's their take on uh, paid leave from the workplace, paid vacation time, paid maternity leave, paternity leave, paid family time? She didn't say any of that. What's the, how are they as a leader? Do they show the blame? Yeah. I'm not, uh, the vague, all like the, 
the vague criteria annoy me to no end because that's always in the eye of the beholder. It is massively subjective. What's not subjective is the tangibles. Tell me what you're for. That's not subjective. Then we log that in the old memory bank or we write it down, and then when you either push for it or don't push for it, either go after you or give you credit. It makes sense. But the, the whole, like, like, what are their leadership qualities? Yeah. There have been, you know, silent, strong leaders and loud, aggressive leaders, and some of them are good and some of them are bad on both sides of that. So what, like, that's all subjective. That's all in the eye of the beholder. But let's put aside that part of the conversation because the more important part of the conversation is, you heard it. She was like, I yearn for the days of the old convention system where the party leaders would pick who would be our nominee. It says a lot that you yearn for that. And her reasoning, oh my God, it's like a long process and it's messy. So what? (laughs) Who cares? Oh, it's long and it's messy. I don't know if you've been paying attention. The Republican primary in 2016 was maybe the longest and the messiest and they won. <laughs> like, that's not, a, that's not a point. It's long and messy, and I don't like it. Okay, who cares? I don't care if you like it or don't like it. It is a more democratic process. And by the way, one can argue, and it's not only one can argue, one should argue because it's true. It was, as Chomsky says, the shenanigans of the party managers that led to Donald Trump winning last time. Why? Because the DNC did the thing that you kind of wish that they would do, which is they get together and they pick who's going to be the nominee. And wow, would you look at that? They picked Hillary Clinton. They did everything they possibly could to put their finger on the scale to make it Hillary Clinton. And then they got Hillary Clinton. They did the Pied Piper strategy to try to raise up Donald Trump. And then they got Donald Trump. And then Hillary lost to Trump. They thought, oh my God, there's no way Trump could be Hillary. And then he beat Hillary. So if the party managers got to pick who they wanted, and they kind of did in 2016, um, well... We saw how that worked out. So maybe, just maybe, the elite assholes behind the scenes don't know anything and know a hell of a lot less than your average voter. Now, don't get me wrong, guys. I'm not one of those people who, you know, acts like the voters are always right and they're above reproach and they've never gotten anything wrong. That's not true. But when it comes to voters... A majority of the time, will they be in favor of things that improve their lives? Yes, they will. That's a totally different thing. I think it's totally fair to call voters ignorant in the U.S. because in many ways they are ignorant. They can't answer a lot of basic questions about how our government functions, basic questions about the history of the United States or the different presidents or whatever it might be. So they're ignorant, but ignorant is not stupid. That's not the same thing. And I guarantee you the voters are not stupid. They know, generally know what's in their best self-interest, or the majority do, okay? Most of the time, the majority knows. So I think that the wisdom of the voters is worth a hell of a lot more than the non-wisdom of the party elites who always screw it up. Why? Why do they always screw it up? Because party elites are wired to do what is best for party elites. So all of those DNC party elites knew if Hillary wins, Who's going to be in her cabinet? We're going to be in her cabinet. If Bernie wins, we're all fired. Because we don't believe in what Bernie believes in. So it was more about careerism 
narcissism, self-aggrandizement, corruption, nepotism. It was about all that stuff. It wasn't about what's best for the country. How do we fix the country? What's the best way forward? What's a fair, open process? What's a democratic process? It wasn't about any of that stuff. Hey, at least they're being up front now. They're being up front. They're being honest. They want those party managers to run everything, even though that's what happened in 2016, and it led to Donald Trump. Fox Business Network decided to do some propaganda for Donald Trump here. They are going to act like the idea of invading Mexico to fight the drug war, or I should say escalate the drug war, with a literal invasion of Mexico. They're going to act like that's an awesome idea. The president has decided that the United States can no longer tolerate the corruption of the Mexican drug cartels and the deadly consequences of the tens of billions of dollars of illegal drugs those cartels smuggle across our southern border. President Trump ran on an agenda of securing the border. Since taking office, the president has done just that. The Trump administration working tirelessly to stop the flow of illegal immigrants and illegal drugs, working with Central American governments and Mexico, cracking down on caravans and false asylum seekers. The president's pressure on the Mexican government has led to as many as 27,000 Mexican troops now on the borders helping curb illegal immigration to the United States. But as aggressive as Mexico has been in cracking down on illegal immigration, the government of Mexico appears reluctant to take the same aggressive posture to fight the violence of the deadly drug cartels. Even though 80% of Mexico is now either controlled or disputed by the cartels, even though the murder rate in Mexico is on pace yet again for another record-setting year, through October, more than 29,000 people have been killed up from 28,869 over the same period a year ago. President Trump is suggesting he will designate those cartels as terrorist organizations. Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador pledged he will cooperate in combating cartel violence with the United States, but rejects the idea of intervention by the United States. Joining us tonight is Tom Holman to take up this issue. Tom, former acting director of Immigration, Customs Enforcement, Fox Business contributor. Tom, great to see you and uh, the president standing up and, and taking on the cartels, uh, despite the protestation originally and initially uh, by uh, Manuel Lopez Obrador. Look, once again, President Trump's 100% accurate. He's right on this issue. Mexico can't defeat the cartels without us. They failed at this for decades now, four decades at least. We have the experience. We did this in Panama with Noriega. We did it with Chapo out of Colombia. 
we can go we can go help these people. We have the we have the sophistication of investigations. We have the we have the forensics of financial investigations. We have talented investigators, very talented prosecutors. Mexico cannot succeed without us on this issue. Mexico can't succeed, and the cartels depend on this country to succeed. Uh, with their sex trafficking, their human smuggling, the smuggling of deadly drugs, the corruption of the entire border, and let's be clear, it's both sides of that border, and the deadly violence that Mexico is exporting into this country, the deadly fentanyl uh, that China is well. exporting to Mexico for distribution into the United States. This nonsense, the president has decided, is at an end, uh, doing what, as you correctly point out, what every one of his predecessors lacked the courage and principle to do, and that is to shut it down. Is there anything he could do where you wouldn't immediately take his side and fawn all over him? Is there anything? Because I got news for you. A lot of the time, Donald Trump uses the rhetoric of not doing stupid wars and interventions, and then... He always violates that. Whoops! Oh, looks like I want to do another one over here. Would you look at that? Maybe interventions are not so stupid. And Fox News and Fox Business all the time go right along with him. Oh, yes! But a brilliant move by a brilliant president, sir! Yes! Oh, Mr. Trump! When you pass gas, I love it. Oh! Trump, it smells like delicious vanilla ice cream. What a sycophant you are, Lou Dobbs. Okay, listen to what they're saying. They're saying the reason why Trump designated the drug cartels a foreign terrorist organization is so that it opens the door for us to be able to do a literal invasion of Mexico and fight a literal hot war against them and escalate a hot war against them. That's the whole point in designating them a a foreign terrorist organization. So make no mistake about it. This is laying the groundwork for a literal invasion and another boots-on-the-ground war. That's what this is about. And they're saying it's a good idea. And the guest has the nerve to say, well, I mean, they can't defeat the drug cartels without us. If only we had been directly involved in say, a a war on drugs for the past, I don't know, few decades. We've been waging a war on drugs. This is the exact approach we've taken. Now, Trump wants to take the next step, which is literal boots-on-the-ground military invasion into Mexico. But outside of that, it has been nothing but, oh, everything looks like a nail and I have a hammer. So it's been a, a militaristic approach for decades now. And the drug cartels are more powerful than they've ever been. Guys, we just caught El Chapo not that long ago. And the drug cartels are still more powerful and worse than they've ever been. Your whole strategy is dead wrong. And no matter how much you cheer Trump on like a cheerleader, like a little sycophant you are, that's not going to change the reality of the situation. They do this thing called a decapitation strategy, which means, okay, this is what's going to happen. We'll take out the leader... And then the whole organization will fall apart, and then that's it for the drug trade, and there's no more drugs. Except that doesn't happen. You take out the main guy, 
the drug cartels gets splintered, fractionalized, and then you have people fighting in the street to determine who's going to be the next drug kingpin. So, if anything, this approach that we're taking is worse than doing nothing. Because at least if we do nothing, there's a hierarchy and a power structure, and you don't have a war in the street to determine who the next kingpin is. But when we do what we're doing, you guarantee that there's going to be a war in the street to determine who the next kingpin is. And then would you look at that? Violence shoots through the roof. Innocent civilians getting killed, getting hurt, shoots through the roof. Your strategy is just wrong. The only way you're going to defeat the drug cartels is to put them out of business by legalizing, taxing, and regulating drugs. That's the only way to do it. How do I know? Prohibition. As soon as we got rid of prohibition, fast forward three years, four years, the mafia lost so much power. Because the mafia, they had a monopoly. They were making all the money from selling all the alcohol since alcohol was illegal. You didn't have legitimate businesses selling it and making money. So all that money went to the black market, went to the mafia. And then if you have a dispute on the black market, you solve it with guns in the streets. If it's legal, taxed, and regulated and you have a dispute, you settle it in a courtroom like civilized people. So what's happening in, in Mexico now with the drug war, what's been happening for decades, is predictable, and it's not going to change. It's like that old definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Well, now they're going even further in the wrong direction. And Lou Dobbs and Fox Business and Fox News and the little Trump sycophants are refusing to actually use their minds and think about this objectively because they got to give daddy credit. And by the way, Trump, just so you know, because we covered this story recently, he seems to understand the logic of what he's doing that's incorrect. Because when it came to um, vaping, he was like, well, hold on now. If I ban the flavored vapes, well, isn't it just going to be counterfeit products that come in here? And aren't those products going to be more dangerous? Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what's going to happen. So why are you not applying that to drugs as well? Why are you not applying that logic to drugs? You don't understand that there are more societal ills that come about as a result of it being illegal and pushed underground? You criminalize it. You put people behind bars. They're selling it if they're addicted to it. Why isn't that treated like a medical issue, like it should be? Why don't you allow people a legalized, taxed, and regulated product to make sure it's safe and not counterfeit and not connected to the, the drug cartels on the black market? It's just so made like. Nobody should take these guys seriously because they, their role is to play for a team. That's what you're watching right there. That's what you see right there. Now, when you come to this show, I'll go after everybody. I'll just tell you what I think. Sometimes I'm going after Democrats. Sometimes I'm going after Republicans. I'm giving you what I think about it. Lou Dobbs is not giving you what he thinks on any issue. Lou Dobbs is just saying what he thinks he's supposed to say, playing the role of Trump defender, Trump sycophant. And it's embarrassing. If you can't see it, I don't know what to tell you. Now, I guarantee you this. The next time Donald Trump goes out there and he says something that's anti-war, anti-intervention in a certain context, Lou Dobbs will give it credit. And if you point out to him, hey, man, that's a contradiction. You're in favor of a militaristic approach here and here. You're in favor of a non-militaristic approach here and here. What's your, what, what are your principles here? What's your ideology? What's your philosophy? What's underpinning the way you're acting here? His response? <laughs> Whatever Trump does, I like. 
well, that's why nobody should take you seriously. All right, next. <clears throat> CNN host Michael Smirkanish decided to awkwardly fawn over Michael Bloomberg in one of the grossest and weirdest segments I've seen in a while. in New York City today and wondering why all the hostility toward Michael Bloomberg. The former mayor of New York City formally entered the presidential race this week. He was greeted with a torrent of nasty headlines. Take a look at these. No other Democratic candidate was so coldly welcomed into the race. Bloomberg got no honeymoon. Think about it. When Elizabeth Warren announced that the initial coverage speak to her, quote, baggage, did the first round of stories about Bernie Sanders address the, quote, huge barriers he'd confront? Anybody ever use the word groan regarding Kamala Harris? Anyone ever say disqualify soon after Amy Klobuchar announced? No way. It's been a total double standard, with much of the animus directed at Bloomberg's wealth. Instead of focusing on the fact that he's the son of a middle-class accountant who earned his money himself and that by not accepting donations, he did not prostitute himself to the political process. His self-financing is cast as a negative, and his uniquely American story largely ignored. Well, I have a different perspective. I say, welcome, Mr. Mayor, and thank you for your willingness to enter what TR describes as the arena. You've been in this race just a week, and already your face is marred by dust and sweat and blood. You don't need this. You can spend the rest of your years with your feet up in Bermuda, Hell, you could buy Bermuda, but you choose to continue to contribute, both with your donations and with your talents. Your ethics seem above reproach. You're a data-driven, non-ideologue. And by most accounts, New York City benefited from your leadership of 12 years. So I say good luck. You can have my salt shaker and my sugary drink. Just make the trains run on time. I mean, where do you begin with this? You do know that that's like literally an argument that was used for fascism, right? <laughs> like, well, at least they make the trains run on time. The whole point of that was to say, wow, don't be misled into thinking that just because something is orderly means it is by definition positive. But he brings it up as if it's positive. Like, but just make the trains run on time and it's all good. Okay, first of all, his whole premise is wrong because I've seen plenty of articles agreeing with Bloomberg. I know because I got angry as I read through them. <laughs> there have been quite a few of them. Second of all, I would bet a significant amount of money. Start the clock from the second Bloomberg got into the race until the second he drops out. Bloomberg will get a lot more positive coverage than Bernie Sanders, Tulsi Gabbard, and Andrew Yang. Those three have been repeatedly snubbed by mainstream media in different ways. In the case of Andrew Yang, they literally take him off the screen when citing the polls. Cory Booker and Kamala Harris will be polling below him, but they omit Yang, take him out, and put those two in. Insanity. One time they called him John Yang. I don't know if it was MSNBC or CNN or whoever it was. 
But um, it's just ridiculous. Tulsi, they can't go three and a half minutes without calling her, you know, an Assad puppet, a dictator lover, a Russian plant, whatever. All of that is absurd, ridiculous, smearing somebody who is in the U.S. military. You're going to say, this person's a traitor? This person's doing treason? They're in the U.S. She's in the U.S. military today, to this day. If you want to disagree with her own policy, that's fine. But they don't do that. They go right for the smear attacks. In the case of Bernie, oh, my God, we don't even need to go over it. Half the show on this show we're covering is, look at this thing they said about Bernie. Look at that thing they said about Bernie. Look at how they mischaracterize him. Look at how they're bending over backwards to avoid saying his name and talking about him as much as possible, even when he's polling strongly in second place. They did a headline like Biden leads and, and Buttigieg in a strong fourth. What? <laughs> it's endless. It's endless. So you want to talk about media bias? Let's talk about media bias, Michael Smearconish. Oh, please. Bloomberg's got media bias. You do know two, guy, two guys just dropped out, Joe Sestak and um, I'm blanking on the other one. See, even I'm blanking on him, and I'm like, and I follow this stuff, like, really closely. Um, oh, Sandra Bullock. Steve Bullock. Whatever. Sandra, I call him. So they both dropped out. They were both, if I'm not mistaken, public officials. One of them was the highest-ranking military official running for president. You know how much coverage they got? Next to none. Okay? Michael Bloomberg jumped in late is skipping the first four contests, and he's getting way more covers than they ever got. So, really, the bias here is in favor of him. The only reason he's being taken seriously at all is because he's spending $37 million doing a $37 million ad buy. So, he's buying legitimacy in this race. That's what he's doing. And, by the way, Michael Smirkanish. You know, maybe he's an honest actor. I don't know. But maybe he's saying kind things because he knows that Bloomberg News could be a future employer of his. There is a problem there because the $37 million isn't just to try to buy support from the public and have them see his ads and maybe changes some minds and makes people want to vote for him. But it's also, you know who really likes that? The networks. The networks love. They're getting rich off Michael Bloomberg. So, of course, they're going to give him more positive coverage. And that's what you're seeing here. So he's got the dynamic exactly backwards, but that's obvious to you guys. But it's just it's so disingenuous how he's presenting it. Then he goes on to say, Michael Bloomberg, are they focusing on the fact that he's the son of middle-class accountants? No. Who cares? I don't care. I don't care what, you know, what happened with Kamala's parents. I don't care what happened with uh, Amy Klobuchar's parents. I don't care what happened with Bloomberg's parents. I don't care what happened with Bernie's parents. I don't care. I care about what they're going to do with the country. What's their ideology? What's their philosophy? We're not, like, voting for a significant other. Ooh, tell me your backstory. Like, who gives a shit? I care about what you're going to do. Why are you a child? You're on CNN and you're a child. Um, and then he says, these are the two parts that got under my skin the most. One of them is, oh, him self-financing is more pure. So wait a second. You agree, then, that... The campaign contributions from billionaires and the campaign contributions from corporations, that that's corruption. You agree with that. Because what you just said implies heavily that you agree with that. And you think, well, the self-financing is obviously better than that because it's not corrupt. Okay, well, then let me ask you a question. 
why are you not then, number one, calling all the people who are taking the corporate money and the billionaire money corrupt? Because he's not doing that. And number two, why are you not giving credit to Bernie Sanders? Because Bernie Sanders is raising through small dollar donations alone. So, you know, as much as you like self-financing, you know what's a lot better than self-financing? Raising small dollar donations alone. Because then you're representing the will of your donors who are the American people. Whereas Michael Bloomberg, self-financing, but he's representing himself and his own ideas and his own ideology, which is better than representing the corporations, but it's not as good as representing the American people. So why are you not – see, he's carve, trying to carve it out to be a special argument in favor of Bloomberg, um, but he would never actually say what logically follows, which is, I guess, Amy Klobuchar and Mayor Pete and, and Joe Biden – and all these other candidates, I guess they're all corrupt, right? And they're off the table because they're in the swamp. He would never actually say that. And he would never give Bernie credit for doing the thing that's even better than the self-financing. By the way, self-financing, that really is some oligarchy shit, too, when it comes down to it. Because I'm sure there's somebody who would make a wonderful president who's living in rural Wyoming right now, but they don't have billions of dollars, so they can't just jump in the race and get the coverage. So it's oligarchy stuff, and you're defending oligarchy and acting like it's like pure and, and, and democratic. It's not. That's not. And then the final thing is, he said, Michael Bloomberg is a data-driven non-ideologue. Totally untrue. Totally untrue. He, of course he has an ideology. Everybody has an ideology. Nobody's purely data-driven. You need a framework through which to view the data. Now, you could have the data inform your framework and tweak it, but there's nothing – there's – Bloomberg doesn't do that. Bloomberg has an ideology. This is a guy who blocked a minimum wage increase in New York City as mayor. That's not non-ideological. That's deeply ideological, and that's corporatist, and that's neoliberal. That's what that ideology is. That's what that philosophy is. He banned big gulps. He banned big sodas. That's ideological. That's deeply ideological, and that's authoritarian. That's what that is. He wants to control you when it comes to your life and your social issues and the decisions that you make. This is a guy who said that, uh, you know, spoke about marijuana, legalizing marijuana as a terrible idea. That's ideological. Again, authoritarian is what that is. It's not, there is no, you can look at data and have interpret, different interpretations of that data. You have to have a philosophical philosophical framework through which you analyze stuff. And this is the line I can't stand, guys, is that, and he's proving it so clearly, he thinks centrist, corporatist neoliberals are just above the fray truth-tellers. That's what he thinks. Me? I'm not ideological because sometimes I agree with Republicans and sometimes I agree with Democrats. Well, I got news for you. If you're agreeing with the establishment Republicans and the establishment Democrats, pretty much across the board, you're going to be terrible. Because the only things they agree on are things to screw you. And that's what he is. He acts like, I'm so above the fray. Sometimes I agree with the right. Sometimes I agree with the left. But your ideology, just because you don't like labels, doesn't mean that there isn't a label that fits your ideology. And there is that. He lives under this childish delusion that just picked the midpoint between, you know, the... Establishment Democrats and establishment Republicans, and that's by definition reasonable. No. What if the Overton window in the spectrum is massively out of whack? As it is, 
then you're just being silly and doing a lazy, falling back on a lazy assumption. The assumption being the middle point is always reasonable. He's not some above-the-fray, data-driven, non-ideological. No. He's deeply ideological, and he dismisses data that he doesn't like. For example, he's against Medicare for All. All the data shows Medicare for All is objectively superior to other healthcare systems. All of it. Ignores it because he doesn't like it, because he does have an ideology. Michael Smirconish, you are flat-out embarrassing. But this is exactly what I expect from him, because he is quite the centrist, corporatist, neoliberal, even though he thinks... He also is just a data-driven non-ideologue. All right, next. I don't know if you guys are going to like this one, but nonetheless, we dive in, baby. CNN brought on a legal expert to do some top-notch goalpost moving on the issue of impeachment. So there's a reason why they're doing this. Take a look. Disclaimer, I say at every turn, you do not need a crime in order to impeach. So if it's an abuse of power, it doesn't matter if it's a crime or not. Let's say, and I think this is probably the most likely likely outcome from a political perspective, Donald Trump is impeached on one or several articles of impeachment by the Democratic-controlled House. It goes to the Senate, which there are 53 Republicans. They need 67 votes to to, uh, remove him from office. They don't get them. He stays uh, and runs for re-election, whatever happens. Is Donald Trump still possibly under or in any legal jeopardy if that process plays out. Because he will say, well, I was acquitted by the Senate. Now, as I always remind people, (laughs) there's not a legal process. It looks kind of like a legal process, right? You have people from the House who will be kind of like lawyers, you know, explaining the case. But there's no legal process. So how does the legal process talk to the political process? Yeah, it's a great question. I get it all the time from our viewers uh, here on CNN. So... Impeachment and criminal prosecution are completely separate processes under our Constitution. There's this idea of double jeopardy that I think we all know. You cannot be criminally charged for the same offense twice over. That does not apply to impeachment followed by criminal prosecution. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about that. And by the way, part of the reason for that is Speaker Pelosi, because she said early on in this case, I don't want to see him impeached. I want to see him behind bars, which I think suggests to people it's got to be one or the other. But no. A person, an officer, a president can be impeached in the House, acquitted in the Senate, and then charged when they're out of office. They can be impeached in the House, convicted in the Senate, and then not charged. Right. So do you understand why they're doing this? They're doing this because they're trying to lower expectations. Because they're finally realizing, oh, we put all all our eggs in this basket and it ain't going to work. In the same way that they did this with Mueller, too. Now, listen, I know a lot of people get mad at me when I talk about this, but, guys, I'm just telling you the truth. I'm telling you what I think is going to happen. You want me to lie to you? <laughs> I mean, I could lie to you if you want, but that's, I wouldn't feel good about it, and I'd be misleading you, and I'm not going to do that. Anybody who talks about the issue of impeachment without bringing up the fact that it's a 99% chance it's going to die in the Senate, 
they're doing journalistic malpractice. It's a disservice to you because they're getting your hopes up and it's going to fail. It's going to flop. And then what? And you're going to feel like you've been burned in the same way that when it came to the Mueller report, I kept cautioning people over and over and over. He's not going to get him on some grand conspiracy collusion type thing. It's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And I was right. And then what happened? A lot of the people who were pushing the nonsense doubled down somehow. Or now they're finally turning on Mueller. So, ah, it's him. It's Mueller. Mueller was the problem. Mueller could have gotten him on X, Y, and Z, but he didn't do the right work. He didn't look in the right places. He didn't, you know, it, it, I guess, maybe, and maybe he's compromised by Russia. Now you're seeing all these theories. Bottom line is, I was correct about that. Now, when it comes to this, I'm one of just a handful of voices saying the same thing, that this is, unfortunately, Ukraine gate is unfolding a lot like Russia gate. Whether or not people want to admit it, you know, like I love, Jenk Uger is my dear friend, but when he keeps doing the tick, 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 tick thing, it drives me crazy because he's wrong. Trump is not going to be kicked out of office through impeachment. You need 20, over 20 Republican votes in the Senate. That's not happening. Not even close. So if you're doing tick, 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 that's misleading. That's not, it's not going to happen, man. It's not going to happen. I'm sorry. I love you, Jenk. It's not going to happen, man. It's not going to happen. It's just not. I'm sorry. So, um, that's why CNN is recognizing this, and now they're trying to move the goalpost slightly. So first of all, I love how they go to um, – they're like, uh, 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 you don't need a crime to impeach. You don't need a crime. Why are you saying that? Why are you saying that? Why? Because they are now convinced that in a court of law, the stuff that they're bringing up against Donald Trump wouldn't stand. Trump would win if this was in an actual courtroom and he wasn't president. So that's why they're going – it's definitely an abuse of, of power, though, definitely an abuse of authority. So the House can impeach him over an abuse of authority. That's true. But, man, that's also weak as hell. That's just so weak trying to make that argument to the American people. And, by the way, guys, the polls keep going up in favor of Trump on the issue of impeachment. I'm seeing the headlines every day. He chips away another three points, another three points in his favor on this issue. Because the Democrats are not making a strong case. And again, I thought for strategic reasons, impeachment is not the way to go. But if you were to do impeachment, I laid out the way where I think it's possible to have an outcome that's decent for Democrats because they could win in the court of public opinion. This is not a way in which they're winning in the court of public opinion. Um, And then they get to the conversation of, is Trump in trouble if he skates on impeachment? And basically they're like, Well, you know, if it's going to not go anywhere in the Senate, which it's not going to go anywhere in the Senate, then but we could still maybe get them. We could still maybe get them because impeachment is not a legal process. It's a political process. And then after when he's not president, then we can maybe get him on something. Walls are closing in again with the (laughs) beginning of the end. Walls are closing in. All day, every day, all day, was nonstop, always with Russiagate, with Mueller now, with this, as well as they're closing in. And it reminds me of an old tweet that I love retweeting. I've done it about a thousand times. Every day, Twitter's melting down. Like, we got him, because they do this all the time, like once a month. It's a, we got him day for Trump. And I retweet this thing that's like, ah, I wonder how old Donnie's going to wriggle his way out of this mess. And then it says, Donnie wiggles his way out easily. And then it says, ah, well, nevertheless. Because <laughs> that's what happens every time. So... Um, they're moving the goalposts. They're, originally, it was, well, obviously, he did, he's doing crimes, so he's 
going to be impeached. And now they're like, well, maybe not crimes, but you don't need a crime because it's definitely an abuse of authority. And now it's, well, if it doesn't ever happen anything, don't even give up hope yet because then after the presidency, then maybe we could get him on something. Maybe, just maybe, you should have listened to those of us who knew what we were talking about all along, and you should resist him in the way that would work. But I know, in order to resist him in a way that would work, that would mean that the Democratic Party has to change a lot about their own identity, because they're corporatists in their own respect. I mean, the other day, we talked about it. They secretly continued the Patriot Act. They continued the Patriot Act. In, in a, a budget funding bill. There's a sunset provision in the Patriot Act. You just have to do nothing and it'll go away. They're like, no, let's reauthorize that. Wait, I thought Donald Trump was a lunatic and you think maybe he's compromised by the Russian government so he's a Manchurian candidate and you want to give that guy the ability to spy on all Americans and continue to do that. That makes no sense. That makes less than no sense. So maybe actually resist in the areas where you should resist and do it as aggressively as possible instead of wasting your time and sniffing your own farts in this realm where it came to nothing when it was Mullergate, and now with impeachment, here's my prediction with impeachment. It's 50-50 in the House. Will they actually impeach him? We'll find out. It's 50-50. Could go either way. It could die in the House, or it could get through. It could go either way. I wouldn't be surprised at all if the House impeached him. But then when it gets to the Senate, I think 99% chance it ain't going anywhere. It's going to die. It's going to die in the Senate. It is. And then he's going to go around, you know, bragging, puffing his chest out, doing rallies. The media is going to have to say Teflon Don survives again. His approval rating will go up in the same way that Bill Clinton's approval rating went up. And all the idiots who were acting like uh, they know how to resist Trump, it was blind leading the blind is what it was. And that would help him in 2020. Now, I hope I'm wrong, man. I hope I'm wrong. I'm not wrong about it dying in the Senate, but I hope I'm wrong in terms of it helping him. Like, I hope it hurts him. I really do. <laughs> I just don't see it. But then again, there is a chance it does hurt him. I just, I just can't wrap my mind around it. But it's possible that just the fact that there's so much smoke there that voters will be like, well, there's definitely fire because look at all that smoke. I hope that's true. Please, for God's sake, make that the case. But either way, we're in a position now where CNN is in no uncertain terms already starting with the goalpost moving. Uh, it was a crime, uh, maybe not a crime, definitely abuse of power. And, it could, and if impeachment is going to happen with impeachment, is it, then if it, nothing happens, then maybe after we'll get him. And actually, final, final thing is this. Um, the Southern District of New York is where you should keep your eyes, because I do think that there's a chance that he's indicted on some crimes, but it's going to be in the Southern District of New York, and it's going to be for financial crimes. It's not going to have anything to do with Russiagate. It's not going to have anything to do with Ukraine gate. It's going to have to do with tax evasion, fraud, things of that nature. Because you already, remember, he already paid a massive fine because Trump University was a fraud. So it's not like he's not a criminal. He is. He's a big criminal. And he's a war criminal, too, by the way. But I think for financial crimes, the Southern District of New York might have something for him when he's no longer president. But it would be when he's no longer president. Because we're operating under the legal theory now from the Constitution that you can't indict a sitting president. So it is true, when he steps down, he could be in some legal trouble. But the only reason they're talking about that now is because they're beginning to realize impeachment is going to die in the Senate anyway. So they want to give people some ray of hope where they feel like all this noise wasn't for nothing, even though to a large extent it kind of was.
Okay, next. Here we go. Jake Uger, who's now running for Congress in the 25th District of California, went on Chris Cuomo's show on CNN to talk about his candidacy. I want to show you the entire interview here because it's really good, and then we're going to come back and talk about it. What about centrist versus progressive? Let's talk. Progressive firebrand Jake Uger joins me now. Good to have you. Jake is running for Katie Hill's open house seat. We'll talk about that. But first, Warren's seeing a little bit of a slip. Sanders pretty much stays in the same place. Buttigieg moving up. Biden stays solid. The analysis is, yeah, that's because going too far left, not even close to where you are, by the way, is not the way to get this nomination. Well, I don't think that makes any sense at all. The reason is you see Santa's moving up, and he's even further left than Warren. The main mistake that I think Elizabeth Warren made, who was a wonderful candidate, but she uh, equivocated on Medicare for All. She didn't mean to, but when she said it's going to be two steps and we're going to do the public option first, uh, that costs her a lot of progressive activism. Medicare for All is dropping in popularity. Well, I mean, you guys attack it nonstop, and it's totally yes. Yeah, the mainstream media does, Jake Tapper does, Washington Post does, and none of it is true. Jake Tapper is one of the most honorable men. He, he's wonderfully honorable, but every he's not poll, correct on this issue. Every Democrat poll says, do I want health care fixed? Yes. Do I want to lose my insurance? No. Do I like Medicare but for all? No, 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 no. First of all, Medicare for, for all polls, excellent. Second of all, when you guys say you lose your insurance, that is terribly wrong. You you have insurance. Even Michael Bennett, who doesn't Michael like insurance. private insurance. Okay, but you have better insurance. Chris, you maybe. got it. No, no, not maybe. maybe. Definitely. I asked Michael Bennett, Senator Michael Bennett, who does not like Medicare for All. He said it's the, if Medicare for All would be the Cadillac plan. He said, yes, you get everything with Medicare for All. You get better insurance. There's no question maybe. about that. Maybe. No There's question about how you pay for it, how long it takes, and what you can actually sell in Congress. But I take your argument. Now to you. Big mouth? No. So you're running for Katie Hill's seat. Yes. First problem, it's purple. Yes. Yeah. You are not purple. Uh, how do you run for a seat where you're going to get hit with two sticks right away? You're not purple. And two, you're a carpetbagger. You're yeah. not from there. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Overcome them. So first of all, uh, I'm going to prove that this mythology that progressives can't win in purple districts is totally wrong. We represent the voters way better. So for example, strong progressives run uncorrupted. So I'm going to run against bribery. All the corporate campaign contributions are bribes. That's what they are. And you know what? Democrats know that, but Republicans know that as well. That's part of the reason that Trump won. He said drain the swamp. People hate the corruption, and progressives are clearly against corruption. When the Nancy Pelosi's of the world say, no, 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 and we, we've got to run as corporate Democrats in purple districts, who are they trying to appeal to? The people in the 25th district don't want big corporations what running about them. They're screwed by what about that you're not us? Yes, so I'm going to move to the district, and it's a fair point. Hey, they say you got to come here to represent I me. Mean, that's right. My wife's a state. She's got a job uh, near where we live now, but she said, yes, we're willing to move. So uh, I can't wait to go. There's a wonderful community. I've been all over the district. I love it. Can't wait to move. And, got, and you have to think about it this way, Chris. Who do you want? 
someone that is going to move in a couple of months and agrees with you completely or someone who doesn't agree with you at all and happens to be there right now? All right, let's see if you can sell the people. Now there's going to be character analysis. You're not a commentator anymore. You're a candidate. You've written things in the past yep. that were ugly. You've said they were insensitive and stupid. People say, not. Nah, you're doing it out of convenience now. You said misogynistic things. Yep. You want to run as a far-left candidate. Uh, they want to protect women's empowerment. You are the enemy. So, first of all, uh, I wrote that stuff eight, now 19 years ago. I deleted it 15 years ago, not because I got caught or because uh, I thought somebody was going to find it. I deleted it because I didn't believe it anymore. So I'm not one of those guys who found Jesus on the way to, oh, my God, I got caught. I, no, 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 no. I said, this is not me. I was trying to be a stupid, politically incorrect Republican. So I wrote these things that I knew were offensive. And so when I saw it with my eyes again, I was like, no, I, I'm getting rid of these. The right wing, the alt-right found them and surfaced them two years ago. Now a lot of the Democrats uh, who are part of the Democratic machine go, hey, I like that right wing. Well, a, lot of resurface them. a lot of progressives, they have zero appetite for a man saying anything about women being inherently inferior. As well they should, because that is totally wrong. The question isn't whether I said that. The question is, did I disavow it? And did, did I disavow it now that I'm running for office? Hell no, 15 years ago. Chris, I've been on the air now 18 years with the Young Turks. And would anybody argue that I'm not progressive enough? No, I fought for women's rights, uh, minority rights, every kind of person you could find, I have fought for. That's why all of the top progressives back me. And, and it's because I've proven it. But it would millions of progressives across the country, including millions of women, support me if I was that guy? No. Well, they support me because I'm a firebrand on the side of the left, on the side of rights for all of those. The questions will come. You'll have to address them. I hear your argument here. The audience does as well. The other big stick, the name of your show, The Young Turks. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a suggestion that until very recently, you didn't believe in the Armenian genocide and that it's not a good faith historical thing. It's a bias. Yeah. And that the name of the show suggests where you are on it, yeah. and that you are basically ignoring genocide. No, absolutely false. So is it true that I was wrong about that again earlier in my life? Yes, I wrote a college uh, paper, not a paper, but an editorial about that. I have disavowed that over and over again, not just now, for year upon year upon year. So it's just not true that it's recent at all. And so why did I believe that when I was younger? Because I grew up Turkish, and I only heard one side of the story. Why didn't you change the name of the show? So the name of the show has absolutely nothing to do with it. My two co-founders are Jewish. When we got together, they weren't Turkish at all. Young Turks, the literal definition of the dictionary is young progressives looking to overthrow right. the establishment. But when you Google the young Turks, you're going to get a history of that term. It's like why now Trump and his guys want to call themselves nationalists. When you look at how nationalism has been used, very ugly. Wait, young are Turks you, was used. No, no, no. Wait, are you saying that Rod Stewart? Are you saying that Rod Stewart uh, called call the song "Young Turks" because he it was an ode to the no. Armenian genocide? Of course not. When Michael Obama did at CAA, of course not. Why did you do it as someone who was saying the Armenian genocide wasn't real? No, but as, as I explained, I already disavowed that. It had absolutely nothing to do with that. So it was about literal definition, young progressives looking to overthrow the established system. Now, you know our show a little bit. It is, I know it a lot. So isn't that nearly a perfect description of what we are? Absolutely. So there you go. That's what we need. But I'm saying there's a convenience out of it now that's going to be criticized. You're a candidate. You've got to answer for it. But, Chris, all of these things, look, I don't come as the accused. I come as the accuser because all of these are distractions from the issues. They don't want to talk about Medicare for All because I'm the only person in the race that's for Medicare for All. They don't want to talk about the corruption because they take giant corporate PAC money. My Democratic opponent, you know what our average contribution this year has been so far? $2,700. 
or so people right. that contributed to her or organizations, only 22 of them appear to be real people. I've got 13,000 real people. I saw the numbers. Me. I'm not questioning them. I'm just saying you're going to put yourself out there. You're going to have to answer for all of it, and that's why I asked you the questions. All right. I'll continue to do so. Jank2020.com. Okay, we're going to win this race, and we're going to show the progressives are super strong, and we can win anywhere because everyone hates the bribery, and everyone can't stand that corporations have taken over our government. I'm going to fight for those folks in that district, and we're going to win together. And you are welcome to make the case here, as always. Thank you, Chris. That was good. That was really good. Um, so at the beginning, they get into it over the idea of centrists versus progressives. And, um, you know, they were talking about the 2020 race. And Jenk accurately points out that Elizabeth Warren really stalled and started going in reverse when she backpedaled on Medicare for All and tried to make it like a two-part system where first I'll give you the choice and Medicare for All who want it for a while, and then after three years we'll come back, and then I'll fight a health care battle again to get Medicare for All. That's the wink and the nod where it's like, I'm not going to fight for Medicare for All. Who are we kidding? And that's when she stalled and started going in reverse. And hilariously, I've seen many articles now trying to claim the exact opposite, that the reason why she stalled and went reverse is because she was aggressively pushing for Medicare for All. That's not true at all. The surge was happening when she was unapologetically arguing along with Bernie in favor of Medicare for All during the debates. So dead wrong, of course, Jenk is there to point out the reality of the situation. All these so-called left-wing policy positions are massively popular. They are right smack dab in the middle of mainstream American opinion. Um, and only in Washington, D.C., and among elite media goons, are these things really considered controversial? So Jenk does a great job uh, pointing that out. Then I love when they start talking about, oh, it's a purple district. Because here's the deal. That's irrelevant. If you're an anti-corruption populist, you're going to have a good chance of winning as long as the district is low income enough. It has to be either a middle income district or a low income district. You just can't have like a very high income district because that's the those are the only places in the country where anti-corruption populism doesn't work because they're pretty comfortable and they don't want somebody to totally change the system but in middle income districts and lower income districts they do so the purple thing is irrelevant the income level of the district is really what matters more than anything um and it, you know his district is borderline man it's madonna borderline all day long um but, you know, we'll see. We'll see. You know, I can't say anything except wait and see. Um, obviously, you can help him out if you want, jenk2020.com. Uh, and he's taking no corporate PAC money, no billionaire money, and he's raising small-dollar donations. And we all know what he's going to fight for because he's Jank Uger, and he makes it perfectly obvious, perfectly clear. Um, but the most important point is, here we go again. It's, hey, man, look at all these terrible things you said. Look at the things you used to believe. Uh, shouldn't everybody be outraged and offended by this? Aren't you a misogynist? Aren't you a genocide denier? Aren't you this? Aren't you that? The whole point is, now I'm not saying Chris Cuomo isn't do, you know, doing what he thinks is right, because um, I'm sure he is. I'm sure he thinks, like, these are very serious things that we need to address. But Jenk nailed it at the end when he said, hey, listen, man, the reason why everybody only wants to talk about this stuff is because they don't want to talk about policy. Because when it comes to 
the substantive issues, I run circles around them. I'm going to win the debate on Medicare for all. I'm going to win the debate on free college. I'm going to win the debate on a living wage. I'm going to win the debate on ending the wars and legalizing marijuana. I'm going to win the debate on re-regulating Wall Street. I'm going to win all these debates. And I have the popular ideas and uh, policy positions and the popular philosophy, and they will do anything to avoid having those conversations. So that's why they're like, oh, my God, look, you wrote a blog post in the year 2000 that was politically incorrect. Who cares? Who cares? Who cares? So um, I think he did a great job there. I hope he can continue getting on CNN and on other outlets, and and, uh, I'm hoping he can make his case and sway people. You know, you got to give him a lot of credit for jumping into, into a race, man, and really testing his medal out because it's not easy. It's easy to sit behind this desk and talk like I'm doing right now. When you actually get involved in a race, that's much harder. Again, the only issue, if Jank were to fail, I think it would just be because of the income level of the district. And if it was a lower income district, then he would, he would do well. But we're, it's nowhere near done yet, and we're just getting started here. So you can volunteer to help him. If you live in that district, obviously go vote for him. Um, you could uh, donate to him. Again, he's only taking small-dollar donations. But he would be a game-changer in Congress, particularly because he would drag that Overton window back to the left and set the debate. That's what he's so brilliant at. He would change the entire debate. Listen, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar are in Congress, and look at how much they've changed the political landscape. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez broke a record for fundraising. She raised more money than Nancy Pelosi. This just came out, and she did it with only small-dollar donations. People are yearning for this new political era with the populist left, people who actually want to fix the system. So as good as they are, and I got nothing but love for them, Jenk is going to go in there and outflank them and be more loud and be more aggressive and reframe the debate even better and really make a big impact. We need a leader in there who can take, you know, guys like Bernie and, and can take other Congress people, the other Justice Democrats in there, and can give them the clear path can help pave the way, use the arguments that need to be used, that then force the Republicans to respond, and then all the Justice Democrats and the All Revolution people and the real lefties back up Jank. It really would be a game changer, man. I'm not kidding. We need that kind of leadership. We need that kind of strength. We need that kind of aggression. Our chances of actually getting left-wing ideas passed and implemented, if he's there, go up exponentially. And that's really important. All right, next. Chris Matthews really exposed the vapidness of anti-Bernie politics on MSNBC. So here he is saying that a strong anti-corruption message is basically un-American 
and it's wrong. But he plays on these cultural issues, make America great again. They're honest feelings, but he exploits them and, and distorts them in his purposes. I think affection and patriotic feeling about the country and feeling about life and choice and traditional values, if you will, the Democrats are very cold about those things. And I think they really miss a chance to win by simply identifying with the feelings of the country better than they do. And that's the only thought I have tonight. And I quoted the end tonight with Bernie Sanders saying, the country's corrupt, our system's corrupt. Be careful about that language, Bernie. Yep. You know, be careful that our system of politics is corrupt. That's too strong. I'm sorry, it has corrupt aspects. But to say our democracy is corrupt is a bad starting point with a lot of people's hearts about this country. That's what I think. Yeah, but you just made that up. <laughs> Other people don't think that. You think that, man. Why can't you just say that? Like, if you just say that, I wouldn't even have to do this segment. I would just say, okay, that's his opinion, and he's saying it's his opinion. But you're not saying it like that. You're like, oh, be careful, Bernie. If you say the system is corrupt, man, you're going to turn a lot of people off. There's no reason to believe that that's the case, and there's every reason to believe the opposite is true. There's every reason to believe it's going to help Bernie. Why? Just look at the numbers, man. Uh, when you look at the approval rating of Congress, it oscillates between like 12% and 30%. It's always underwater, always. Like, if you got a Congress with a 20% approval rating, like, yeah, people think the system is fundamentally broken, especially since we can have an election and then right after the election, you poll people and they still hate Congress. So it's like, how can that possibly be? You guys all just picked these leaders to represent you, and now you say you hate them? Yeah, because they feel like we're only picking a, a lesser of two evils type situation forever. Now, how did it get to that point that we always feel like we're picking, uh, you know, from the lesser of two evils? Well, because we are, because you have Republicans who are totally bought and owned by Wall Street and the corporations and the military and industrial complex. Uh, and every special interest group you can name, and you have the Democrats who are bought by, you know, unions and lawyers, but also Wall Street and also the military-industrial complex. Uh, so it's a matter of which special interests are we going to get to rip us off this election season? Let's pick. And it's just, it's unbelievable. Also, by the way, when you look at polls on money and politics, it's minimum 80%. It's 80% plus. Some polls are way over 80% of people who want to get money out of politics. So, yes, when you look at a system like we have, where it's billions of dollars to run a presidential race, I mean, what, you think that these people don't owe their donors? Of course they do. That's corruption, Chris. The whole system is run on corruption. There are some more clear examples, and there are some more, you know, systemic, soft, examples, but the systemic soft examples are arguably worse because it's just par for the course. Everybody just doesn't bat an eyelash and thinks it is what it is. The, you know, the predatory payday loan industry donated for Trump's inauguration, and then Trump immediately scrapped the lawsuits that were against them and immediately scrapped the Obama-era regulations, which were going to crack down on the predatory payday loan industry. Now, does anybody actually think that Trump just has an ideological, you know, position that 
people should be able to charge 300% interest or whatever insane number. No, he doesn't think about it when it comes to the actual ideology or philosophy or the policy itself. He's just like, I got paid by these people. I'm going to do them a favor. That's corruption. That is deep corruption. When you have, you know, ExxonMobil giving money to all these uh, Republican campaigns, and then they all turn around and continue to give a $4 billion subsidy every year to ExxonMobil, which is corporate welfare. Why do you think they do that, Chris? It's corruption. Now, I get it. You're in Washington, D.C., and you've been on TV forever, and you're comfy. And you're comfy. And you don't look at this as what it is anymore. You just look at it as that's how business is done. That's how everything works. But that's the problem. You're not being objective. You're not being clear-headed about it. You've been beaten down by the process and by the system, and you just think, eh, it is what it is, which is why you're bad at your job. <laughs> like, there's a reason why Bernie's resonating, and the candidates saying everything's fine are not. It's because he's calling for reform, and he's pointing out how outrageous the system is and how all these things need to be changed. So there's no, there's no evidence and no reason to think that Chris Matthews is right on this point apart from the fact that what he's saying is just absurd. Like, oh, careful. You're calling the system corrupt? How dare you? As if people are going to be like, I love America, therefore you're not allowed to say something like that about it. By that logic, you can't criticize anything in this country, and you have to say everything is all hunky-dory. Chris, it's not the 1980s anymore, and it's not the early 1990s. That whole, like, pretend to be so jovial and cheery, that's gone. (laughs) Have you noticed that Donald Trump got elected? He got elected by saying, everything's terrible. <laughs> like, that's what he make America great again, meaning it's not great now. So why do you think you're not allowed to say something's bad, something's wrong, and we need to fix it? And he's right. We do need to fix that. Absolutely. That's arguably the most important issue because it's the issue that impacts all other issues. It's the fact that corporations and billionaires have rigged the system and run the system and own the system with their donations that we're in this mess that we're in today. On every issue, it goes back to some special interest group buying a politician to do their bidding. It always goes back to that. So, man, is he out of touch. Chris, it's time to, it's time to wrap it up. It's time to wrap it up. Because you are not sharp. I mean, not that you ever were, but you're definitely less sharp now than you ever were in the past. Okay, next. Rick Wiles is a far right-wing evangelical host, and he's one of my favorite people to cover because he is so insane, and you watch him say stuff, and you're like, I don't know how anybody allows this on the air. I mean, obviously, if you're broadcasting on the internet, you can say whatever you want, which is wonderful. That's a good thing, (laughs) but... You know, he's got a very professional setup. Looks like there's some capital that's been invested in his little business that he's got going here. And then he just opens his mouth, and it is just astonishing, the stuff that he says. So here he is on his show, casually talking about impeachment. And look at what comes out of his mouth. The way the Jews work. What? They're, they're they are deceivers. What? They plot. 
They lie. They do whatever they have to do to accomplish their political agenda. This impeach Trump movement is a Jew coup. What? And the American people better wake up to it really fast because this thing is moving now towards a vote in the House and then a trial in the Senate. We could have a trial by before Christmas. This country could be in civil war at Christmas time. That's right. Members of the U.S. military are going to have to take a stand, just like they did in the 1860s with the Civil War. They're going to have to decide, are you fighting for the North or the South? Members of the government are going to have to take a side. Instead of North-South, it's going to be left or right. People are going to be forced, possibly by this Christmas, to take a stand. <laughs> Because of this Jew coup in the United States, we have weeks to stop it. That's why I'm speaking out. That's why I'm putting everything on the line. Say, this is a coup led by Jews to overthrow the constitutionally elected president of the United States. And it's beyond removing Donald Trump. It's removing you and me. That's what's at the heart of it. That's right. You have been taken over by a Jewish cabal a Bolshevik revolution, and I want to tell you, the Church of Jesus Christ, you're next. Get it through your head. They're coming for you. There will be a purge. That's the next thing that happens when Jews take over a country. They kill millions of Christians. Dog what? saying all this insane stuff. What? And I like how he flipped the history on its head at the end there. Like, you know, all these Jews, they're going to do a genocide of Christians, obviously. In the 1940s, wasn't it? Wasn't it like all the way around? Like, <laughs> okay, but this is, I mean, honestly, all jokes aside for a second, like, this is the rhetoric that's actually used when guys like him would end up doing a vicious genocide is the idea is like, Oh my God, they're coming for you. 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 You gotta, you gotta fight back. And even though he would be the aggressor, he's acting like, I Nope, I'm just fighting back. It's a purge of uh, Christians. And so I got to make sure that doesn't happen. So what am I going to do? I gotta, I gotta, gotta go. I gotta go kill him. It's it's wild, man. Now, thankfully, my guess is he has about 17 viewers. Three of them are in his own family. <laughs> so it's not – he's got no juice. He's got no pull. But it's crazy to see that this, this ideology, this ph- philosophy is still a thing. And there are people who believe it. It's absolutely mind-boggling. It really is. Um so he said, that's what they do, meaning the Jews. He said, he says it's a Jew coup. I can't, like, what? Um, he said there's going to be a civil war during Christmas. Now, I'm not too much of a betting man, but I'm willing to bet that's not true. <laughs> I put quite a bit of money on that one. Oh, my goodness. How did, like... He always does this. He proclaims things, and they don't come true, and then he, then he just acts like he didn't proclaim them, and he wasn't dead wrong. Um, he spoke about there's going to be a Bolshevik revolution. 
By the way, a lot of the people who are pro-impeachment are obviously not Jewish. A lot of the people who are anti-impeachment are Jewish. So, like, what kind of mental pretzels do you have to twist yourself in to make yourself believe that it's like a cabal of Jews who are driving impeachment and, like, you know, it's only Christians who are against it? It's just like this, he's got a weird worldview that he superimposes, a weird, hateful, anti-Semitic worldview that he superimposes onto reality and then acts like he's keeping it real and telling the truth. It's kind of amazing, like how deluded he is. It, I guarantee you this is a guy who every failure he's ever had in his life, he blamed minorities, probably Jews, based off what you just saw there, but... I could see him for whatever it might be. Maybe he didn't get a job one time as a kid. He blamed either the Jews or he blamed minorities, black people. It's affirmative action keeping me down. That's definitely the kind of guy Rick Wiles is. Now, he's very entertaining because he's so incredibly stupid. But also, we just got to keep an eye, man, because these are ultimately, you know, if there's somebody with more charisma than him that believes exactly what he believes, that's beyond dangerous. Because we've seen how that plays out in history, and it ain't pretty to say the least. All right, final story of the day, y'all. Oh, wrong, not final story of the day. I got two more. How you like them apples? A heartbreaking massacre occurred recently, and unfortunately, you didn't hear about it. Very few people heard about it. I only saw one tweet on it. This is from the New York Times. They say, an American drone strike on a car carrying a woman who had just given birth in southeastern Afghanistan left five people dead, including the mother, three of her relatives, and the driver, Afghan officials and family members said on Sunday. Now, I'm going to make a prediction. That death count is going to go up. Why do I think that? Because it always goes up. Because in the aftermath of something like this happening, the U.S. government tries to cover its own butt and give the most positive spin they possibly could on it in their favor. And so it always, the initial, oh, like we, I've seen stories of like, oh, top Taliban guy taken out or top ISIS guy taken out. And then you read in and, you know, come paragraph seven, they're like, and we end up getting like 12 civilians with them. And then fast forward three weeks. And in some obscure publication, you learn out, you learn actually it was like 57 civilians. So I bet you that the death toll goes up because it always goes up and there will be no justice here. There will be no accountability. And, if you're waiting for the media to cover this, good luck. Credit to the New York Times for putting this, you know, on, doing an article on this. I haven't seen anything in any other outlets, and I cert- you certainly won't see it on TV. Now, we live in a political environment where there is nonstop speculation about impeachment. It's all day. It's all night. It's all they talk about. It's all they care about. And we're at the point where it's just everybody giving their own opinion on it. I don't care about their opinion. If I'm tuning into, which thankfully I I don't nearly as much anymore, thank God, 
but if I tune into Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, like, one would go there because presumably they want to know the news. Instead, you get two hours wall-to-wall impeachment nonstop and just everybody giving their opinion. I mean, it's becoming, it's, it's even worse than sports talk. If you turn on ESPN or you turn on some sports network and they're talking about, uh, you know, some game, they at least all, they'll give their opinion, but at least they also give numbers and facts and statistics. With the impeachment thing, it's like there's no actual information. It's just, here's what I think about this. And, oh, my God, look, Trump tweeted something. Be offended. Be outraged. You know what I'm actually outraged over? This. I'm outraged about the fact that my tax money and your tax money, if you're an American watching this, is going towards illegal and offensive wars and going towards a a drone war, which Chomsky calls the leading uh, terrorist program in the world. There's been a 432% increase in drone strikes under the Trump administration, and civilian casualties are through the roof. And here we see another example of it here. What's going to happen? Uh, the drone operators, they're going to be justice? Are they going to uh, have to face any consequences? Are they even going to get a slap on the wrist? Or are they going to get a trial? Or are they going to go to prison? Is that going to happen? No, there's not going to be that. There's not going to be a slap on the wrist. There's not going to be prison. There's not going to be any further discussion of it. And there's certainly not going to be two-day-long, three-day-long, endless outrage coverage over it. If there was ever a time and a reason to do endless outraged coverage, here you go. I'm funding the massacre of innocent civilians on a regular basis. I'm not okay with that. Are you okay with that? Is that what you want your money going towards? As they turn around and say, oh, we can't do Medicare for all. We can't do free college. We can't have basic things that other developed countries have. Sorry, we don't have the money for it. But I'm going to keep taking the tax money and put it towards illegal and offensive wars that kill civilians on a regular basis. And then when it happens, we just say, well, it's collateral damage. They have a way of dehumanizing the targets. But the people that died here, they're regular people. They had hopes. They had dreams. They had a, you know, a future they were looking forward to. They just had a kid. Now they're all gone. And nobody, nobody's talking about it. Nobody cares. Because whatever, they're over there. They're the victims. They're over there. They're far away, probably in a stronghold anyway of terrorist activity, so maybe they shouldn't have known the wrong people. These are like literally the things that they say. That's what the Obama administration argued when they killed uh, Abdul Rahman Al-Awlaki, who was the 16-year-old son, of, and his dad was a terrorist. Anwar Al-Awlaki was a terrorist. But they killed the 16-year-old son. And then when they said, whoa, you just – and he was an American citizen, by the way, overseas. They said, yo, you just killed an American citizen. No due process, no nothing. You know what they said? He should have had a better father. So we do extrajudicial murders of people for having bad relatives, for having bad family members? This is where we're at in this country. And again, the genuinely outrageous does not get the outrage coverage, ever. It, it's, it's frustrating. It really is. Because our moral compass in this country when it comes to the media is totally broken. Their moral compass, moral outrage meter is just totally busted. And there's no prayer of it ever getting back to any place that makes sense. And unfortunately, that's why so many of you have to turn it, tune into YouTube to get news that's better than what you're getting on TV. And that's not a testament to us being good. It's a testament to them being really, really bad.
All right, final story of the day, y'all. Here we go. There's a group by the name of Partnership for America's Healthcare Future, and they released an anti-Medicare for All ad, and boy, is it a doozy.
So I, oh, one size fits all is bad. Why? Why? Why is that bad? You should be able to choose your health insurance. Choosing in health insurance is like choosing for a fire department. It makes no sense. For a fire department, if something catches fire, they should come and put it out. End of conversation. You shouldn't be able to go, you know, if it's my kitchen, put it out. But if it's my bathroom, I don't want you to put it out. That's ridiculous. People will look at you like you're crazy. But when it comes to health care, you should be allowed to say, heart disease, yes. Cancer, no. Kidney, yes. Spleen, no. No coverage for my spleen, please. Ridiculous. Their talking points are so weak. Then notice what else they did. And this shows you that capital concedes nothing. Power concedes nothing. Um, they conflate Medicare for all, public option, and all that stuff. They're like, oh, all these, they mean the same thing. No, they don't. Not at all. Some of them are total half measures and would keep you in, a, in the driver's seat. But see, they don't even, they will fight tooth and nail even against those things. Why? Because they don't want a single red penny to be cut from their profits. They'll fight tooth and nail to stop everything. And that's exactly why. There is no negotiating with the industry. They are the problem. They are the cancer. And they're the cancer because sometimes they choose not to cover cancer. So, listen, this is just nothing but rank propaganda. They, and they've gotten to the point, they'll just flat out lie, and that's what they did there. When you hear any of these things, what it means is higher taxes and premiums and lower quality care. Actually, the bill quite clearly is better care. Right now, we have 500,000 medical bankruptcies every year. We have 30,000 to 45,000 deaths from no health care. There are horror stories all over the place of people in our system. They just ignore that. And they act like, well, it'll be lower quality care. Says who? Says you. You just made it up. And you also made up the higher taxes and premiums thing. If, if I say to you, hey, man, you're paying $10,000 a year now for your health insurance, premium, co-pays, deductibles, all that stuff. You're paying 10000 what if I told you you only have to pay 7000 and everything's covered? You'd be like, that's awesome. That's what I want. Right. That's what we're talking about here. But see, what they're saying is since that 7000 comes in the form of taxes, it's worse than paying 10000 in private taxes? Because that's what it is. They're private taxes. That's the argument that they're, that they're making. And they say, oh, increased premiums. There are no premiums under a Medicare for All system. Everything's free at the point of service. They're liars. They're liars. But guess what, guys? They're scared. They're scared because they see the popularity of this. They see Bernie Sanders is doing well in this race. They see it. They're terrified. But ironically, they prove his point even by running this ad. Why do I say that? Let me ask you a question. How the hell do they have money to run an ad? I thought you are a health insurance company. You know what health insurance companies are supposed to do? Pay for health care for people. Somehow you have just you have money laying around to do an ad buy. Every single dollar you spent on that is a dollar not spent on giving people health care. Just the fact that you ran the ad says everything I need to know about you. You have to understand, guys, the way this system works, which is why you cannot have a for-profit uh, health insurance system. The way it works is they make more money the more they deny care because that means more money to pad their bottom line. It really is that simple. 
Now, I'm not like some people who might watch this show who want to nationalize everything or take the profit motive out of everything. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. But are there some things where the profit motive shouldn't be involved? Are there some things that should be out of the realm of capitalism? Well, that's a no-brainer. The answer is obviously yes. So, and here we go. The more they try to argue against it, the more they're going to prove Bernie's point. Just know that the efficiency of Medicare for All, too, is way higher than under our um, private health insurance system. It's way higher. 80% of the money goes to health care for our private health insurance systems. When it comes to Medicare, 93%. Way more efficient. 13% more efficient. I mean, there really is no debate about what's objectively better. We know Medicare for All is objectively better. But it would cut into their profits. It would change the game and get rid of that mafia middleman, and they can't have that. Okay. All right, we done, baby. I love you guys. I will talk to you on Thursday. Everybody have a great rest of your day. Peace.